If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. Listen, 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 listen. This uh, this was actually a, a good time right here, man. I, yeah. I didn't know very much about uh, Dr. Cabral until... He got here. I mean, I looked up some of his stuff and follow him on Instagram. And I got on the phone with him before is what happened. We, cause yeah, we this, saw was, stuff. This, this was really you who uh, introduced him to us. Yeah, I got on the phone with him because I, I, knew, I knew of him, but I didn't know too much. Got on the phone and, you know, he has a, a background in uh, naturopathic medicine and uh, Ayurvedic medicine, mm-hmm. which I, which sounds like they're, they're opposing, but they're not. Um, and he just has an incredible – I like his approach. I like his approach to total health. And he's extremely intelligent. I mean, in this episode you're about yeah. to hear, he goes off for an hour. Like you should he, probably get a new tropic or something. Yeah, uh, I mean, to stay yeah in line with this episode. He breaks a lot of things down, and we ask him a lot of questions, and he, he keeps breaking them down. Very, very, very smart, informed guy. All you nerds who like listening to Mind Pump, you're oh gonna my, love this. This is a nerdtastic episode. You're gonna love but. this episode. He also has a podcast. It's actually quite popular. He was telling us about how big his reach is. It's a it's a pretty popular podcast. It's called the Cabral Concept. Uh, so if you're really into health and the technical side and the scientific side, uh, you're probably gonna want to check that out. His website is Stephen StephenCabral.com. That's S T E P H E N C A B R A L dot com um and then he has a book called the rain barrel effect i think you can find that at equilibriumnutrition.com is that is that correct doug Am I, that is correct um and then in this episode we talked a lot about all these different ways you could optimize your health mm-hmm. besides the staple most important things like nutrition right. exercise it was sleep. really interesting to hear him talk about some of the tools that you would use right. to do that yeah. because you know typically when you get these uh you know I, I don't know what I want to categorize him as, but like your your naturopathic type of doctors or Ayurvedic type medicine. Eastern guy. sort of philosophy. Yeah, he's exactly, thank you, Justin. That's the direction I was heading with it. They are like anti any tools, mm-hmm. but he actually was really open-minded to a lot of that, and he I think he uh, he dropped some really good information in regards to yeah. that. Yeah, he's, he's a very Western approach to it, I feel, and what, what was great about it is, um, you know, we even got into a, a few like specifics, like Adam brought up his psoriasis, and you know, and, and he talked a little bit more about like acid reflux so it's like you got a free uh a doctor visit yeah it was really cool yeah, we yeah. got into cellulite too so cellulite that, yeah. yeah he talks about the hormonal causes of cellulite actually in this episode so that's going to be really good um but yeah we talked about some of these because he combines western and eastern philosophies because there's value in both and we fully agree with that that's something we've been talking about for a while so we talked about cannabinoids um like the cannabinoids found in hemp extracts of course we're sponsored by Ned, who one of the best companies for that type of product. You can go to helloned.com forward slash mind pump and get 15% off your first purchase. Then we talked about uh, testing, lab testing or testing at home, your hormones and food intolerance testing. All of those are available at Everly Well. So if you go to everlywell.com, use the code mind pump, you'll get 15% off. He also blew me away with his, uh, with quoting studies on uh, sauna use. And it's Dramatic reduction. I wasn't familiar with just how big of an impact it had on reducing all-cause mortality. Crazy statistics. Uh, one of our favorite sauna companies is Sunlighten. If you go to sunlighten.com and you mention Mind Pump, you'll get free shipping. 
Then we talked about red light therapy. Of course, Juve, that's the company that we've been working with for a long time. Adam used it uh, for his psoriasis and to help him with his testosterone. If you go to juve.com, J-O-O-V-V.com forward slash mind pump, you will get a free MAPS Prime program with the purchase of $500 or more and free shipping. And then finally, we talked about using tools like brain.fm to help get your body into a more parasympathetic state. That's mm-hmm. the state that's recovery. It's also the rebuilding state. So for those of you that want to boost Powerful your metabolism. Powerful tool for that. Yeah, absolutely. He loved it. Uh, he talks about using it all the time. So you can go to brain.fm forward slash mind pump. And finally, uh, October, it means a couple different things. One of them is Halloween. The other Which one is... is- the other one is Witches. the biggest uh, promotion we've run all year. This is the Ever. one we've gotten all Ever. the DMs about all the time. We had this huge debate, you know, were we going to make, were we going to do a sale on Maps Aesthetic at 10% off? And uh, no. no, 20% off. That's a no. dick move. 30% off. No. 40% off, Adam. Adam says no. Achoo, no. We're cutting the price in half. Half, you say. In half. Uh, <laughs> Maps aesthetic is flying off the shelves. We only have three left. <laughs> if you go to, <laughs> I don't know, hard. that could be backfiring. I know, right? Someone like, hears it eight days. Like, oh, oh shit! Well, so Someone definitely got it. No, it's, yeah. it's digital. There's no limit. Uh, <laughs> if you go to mapsblack.com, enter the code black fifty b l a c k fifty, the number fifty, at checkout, you'll get fifty percent off, half off of the bodybuilding focused. MAPS Aesthetic Program. Urgency. Now, now, if you want to check out some of our other MAPS programs or bundles, like our Super Bundle, which is a full year of exercise programming, you can go to mapsfitnessproducts.com. And without any further ado, that's a weird word, by the way. I I didn't even know what that really means. You're not even French, dude. Adieu. Here we are interviewing Dr. Stephen Cabral. Have you done a favorite interview yet? Like, who's been your favorite that's interviewed you? You know what? I've really connected with Jay Ferrugia. Oh, I, I love Jay. He's an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. But the reason I like Jay is just because he's no nonsense. Like he will never agree with you or disagree with you if that's his belief. He's just like, I've been through it. I've seen it all. And, and he's very open to mm-hmm. new concepts as well. Um, so he gives kind of like new. Uh, we've been, I mean, I've been doing this forever, but like he's one of the original guys too. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. he's, he was there in the beginning. So I really enjoyed him. And, uh, who would be one other person? Well, I did the Skinny Confidential show, and um, their their audience just we did we did advanced functional medicine lab testing went like through the roof like oh. it was bananas. Excellent. Yeah. I yeah. think the uh, girls right that do that one Skinny Confidential. Um, it's uh, Lauren and Michael, oh, okay. uh, husband and wife. Oh, husband and, and wife. they just have on like anybody, like all sorts of different um, influencers or doctors or whoever it might be. And for whatever reason, it just kind of like clicked, and, and it was just huge. That's have you great. had any? Have you had anybody that? Uh, really tries to put you on the show and challenge the shit out of you and um well i was just did uh, ben pakulski's show okay um, do you good friend of ben? ours yeah yeah, yeah, yeah very yeah. good friend of ours he's an amazing guy and so we've been just chatting back and forth for a couple months and uh, again like everything i do is i always say like i have no dog in the race like i don't care who's right and so like that throws people off They're like what do you mean i'm like well i'm like I can give you points on veganism. I can give you points on why a carnivore diet might work in the short term, but not the long term. Mm-hmm. I was like, I honestly don't care. And so Ben goes after that. He's like, what are you, what are you talking about a low protein diet? What are you talking about this? And I'm, I'm just like, here it is. Like, um, and just say like, I see the points of why some people do it and why don't other people don't. 
but I've never had anyone just kind of like come after me because I'm not that kind of guy in the first place. Right. Right. Like I don't, I, I, you know, for whether it's keto based or whatever, I'm like, I get it. I understand why you're doing it, Mm. but there's a huge difference between short term, amazing results and a lifetime of data and a lifetime of doing it. You know, like what happens when you put yourself in more of a catabolic state that creates a lot of autophagy in the body, Right. but you do that for 30 or 40 years. Like, do you, get osteoporotic? Do you get, you know, myelin sheath based, you know, right. uh, delineation? So mm-hmm. when you say a point like that, what do you think about when you hear all the stuff about artificial sweeteners right now? Yeah. So I'm, I'm when I, I mean, artificial sweeteners are one of the most toxic things that you can put in your body for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that, so explain yeah, that. please explain. So when we, when we look at, um, like, let's just take something, for example, at sucralose. So Splendil. Now this is something I just say, I keep myself open. I was back personal training in the late nineties and early two thousands and sucralose Splenda kind of just came out and I was like, this is great. It's zero calorie. Um, and we're looking at like kind of blood sugar spikes, those types of things. I'm like, this looks good. And then I get into functional medicine and I get into naturopathy and I'm like, Oh, I'm like, they replace one molecule. Like, Oh, it's no big deal. It's just one molecule. Well, it's one molecule that they replace with chlorine. Mm -hmm. And so once we look at that, we're like, Oh, yeah, it doesn't. It, it does have an effect on blood sugar because you taste the sweetness, which means your body is looking then for the minerals that should come along with the sweet, and it doesn't get it. So that actually triggers uh, ap- more appetite in the body, or, or at least um, no suppression of uh, hunger. But worse than that, it actually starts to disturb the microbiome. So when you look at that, and you look at like, okay, well, what are the repercussions of not doing Splenda one time, but doing it every day, a couple times a day? For a decade, you know, mm-hmm. what does that do? Does it actually imbalance, cause some type of SIBO, small intestinal bacterial um, overgrowth? And that's what I see. So I look at all of these things as part of the rain barrel effect. Like literally, it's like, okay, if you just do Splenda, probably no big deal. But what if you do Splenda and you have uh, mercury amalgams in your mouth and you're exposed to EMFs all day? It's like, you're just, you know, a toxic mm-hmm. mess. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do is I say, hey, listen, I live in the real world as well. Um, what I need you to do is get yourself healthy first and then focus on kind of like your non-negotiables and then try to remove as much of the other stuff as you can. Yeah, they just uh, there was a study that just came out from a uh, European and Israeli scientists studied six of the artificial sweeteners. So sucralose, aspartame, uh, uh, saccharin, and a couple others. And they found that all of them have a negative effect on the, on the microbiome. And, you know, and the argument I hear from people, you know, is, well, we don't know what that, okay, fine, it affects the microbiome, but we don't know if it's negative or positive. Like, how, how do you argue with that? Well, um, for sure, they're synthetic. And whenever we're talking about synthetics, the body wasn't necessarily made uh, to process those things. So now you're asking the liver then to do that much more work. So again, I look at it as part of the overall process. We know that um, aspartame in certain people can absolutely cause or at least exacerbate neurological-based conditions, like without a doubt. I mean, it can be a neuro-based toxin. So then you say, well, for who? You know, that's always the argument. We just say, well, we don't always know. But the truth is like, Maybe it is you, but why play why play Russian roulette in the first place right. when you could just do mm-hmm. a teaspoon of raw honey or a teaspoon of maple organic maple syrup that contains five grams of sugar that literally will not spike blood glucose levels. They show for most people, eight grams or less is not going to have the massive glucose effect, which is why in type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. you can typically do a little sugar and it's not going to have any effect. So why wouldn't we do something a little bit more uh, natural or if we do something such as stevia? I just did a podcast on this where... Stevia, if we look at green leaf stevia, most people don't use green leaf stevia because it's only 10 to 15 times sweeter than sugar, but it has a very bitter aftertaste. Mm-hmm. So we actually look at the extracts. It's extracted in two different um, steviocides, and I believe it's like rabidocides or something like that. Yeah. And um, when you look at those extracts, 
those are still okay as long as they're organic. And the reason is that if they're not organic, they use chemical solvents. So sometimes it's not the thing, it's the chemical solvent that they're putting on the thing that actually creates mm. the toxicity. So we look at that. We also look at dosage. You know, it's uh, for right now, it's somewhere between, I think, I think it was eight teaspoons per day. And, and just, again, if you're using a little bit of stevia, no big deal. But if you're using eight teaspoons of stevia, I mean, you have to ask yourself why. Like, mm -hmm. what's the sugar addiction? Because it is a sweetness addiction. So now we need to wean people off of it. So I look at it as um, here's where you are in the short term. Here's what we need to get. Nobody needs to be using all these artificial sweeteners in the first place. We need to eat sweet foods that are naturally sweet, such as your berries and your low glycemic fruits and your kiwi. And then you should enjoy that. Like, get used to natural taste. Yeah. And there's all now and back to stevia. Um there's some evidence to suggest there may be some contraceptive effects in, in high yeah. doses in, in animals and stuff. Is there anything to worry about with those? Yeah, that's interesting. It actually showed that it can potentially raise progesterone. Okay. So um, I found that interesting. And the main reason is because we test thousands of people. We've literally done over a quarter million um, client appointments. And when we look at that, we say most people are actually deficient in progesterone. And we can talk about that um, is this actually being used for the podcast? Oh, we're going. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're rolling. You're rolling. You're I going. love that we just go right into it. That's great. <laughs> That's how I am. I'm like, let's just start chatting. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we look at that, we're looking at, well, why are most people deficient in progesterone? That's because progesterone is down the catabolic pathway, meaning that progesterone is the precursor to cortisol. So when I look at the precursor to cortisol and I say, okay, well, I can understand that most people are stressed or they're in at least the sympathetic nervous system for the majority of the day. So progesterone is going to be lower. So then I say, okay, based on that, it taking in some stevia, and if it were to elevate progesterone, would that be a bad thing? The, the question is always, well, is it in within ratio with estrogen? Mm -hmm. And so that's how I look at it. The other part is that I haven't seen it actually work or you know, anyone say that it would be as a, as a contraceptive. Um, a few things I have seen is that it can cause kidney-based issues, cause nausea, vomiting at high dosages. Mm. Um, the problem is the dosages are quite high. And I would hope that it's just like people are just trying to be responsible with, mm -hmm. with any supplement because mm -hmm. it is a supplement, right? We're taking it. We're processing it because you're not eating stevia leaf, which most people would never do. Um, you can ground it down to the powder, but just most people don't enjoy that. So you said most people uh, are a little bit low in, in progesterone, obviously typically women, right? Yes. What are the, some of the symptoms of uh, too much of a, of a ratio of estrogen to, to progesterone where they're estrogen dominant, if you will? What, what do they need to look for and why is that so common? Why is that more common than, say too much progesterone. Yeah, absolutely. So what we look at is, uh, so basically your autonomic nervous system has two branches. It has the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. It's the single most important thing that no one is talking about. I know that you guys talk about it, chat about sympathetic nervous system. You guys did a great uh, podcast on lower testosterone. The number one reason, and we work with CrossFit athletes, we work with Olympians. I work with, I'm right down the street from Harvard University. So we work with guys on scholarships, you know, trying to keep their scholarship. And we see low testosterone all the time. And so when we look at it, we just say the number one reason for lower testosterone, in my opinion, isn't the lack of vitamin C. It isn't the lack of zinc. It's not the lack of glutamine and B vitamins. It's the excessive dominance of the sympathetic nervous system because mm -hmm. of the stress in the Western lifestyle. So what we do is we shut off. We try to slow that sympathetic nervous system because that sympathetic nervous system dominance will bring more hormone towards cortisol. If you look at it and you have a big bucket of hormone for your day, you get to put that wherever you want. But if your body is under more stress, then you're going to be able to turn on more cortisol. So how it essentially works is that your brain, through the peripheral nervous system, it, it, it looks at your entire environment 
If it sees you're in a stressful space, getting the kids ready in the mornings in rush hour traffic, a really hard workout. I'd love to talk with you guys about that. How mm-hmm. like low carb diets don't actually keep your blood sugar low. If you're doing a lot of other things in life, and that's it's what the liver pumps yeah. out the glucose or whatever, without a doubt. Yeah. And well, and it does that though because you're in a fight or flight based situation. Right. Your hypothalamus mm-hmm. is telling your pituitary gland, "All right, it's time to secrete something called adrenocorticotropin releasing hormone." That tells your adrenal medulla, "Let's go. Let's produce norepinephrine." What happens? Heart rate gets going. Blood pressure gets pumped <clears> up. You start sweating, and then a positive feedback loop tells your brain. We're in fight or flight. Like mm-hmm. there's a survival based situation. So based off of that, what, what do you think about like uh, CrossFit adopting like the paleo diet? Right. Is that not, not ideal then? It's got to be the worst combo then. Well, the problem is the problem is the the lower carb, right? So That's like I mean. I, we do lower carb in my practice to help people lose weight, but we only do it for three weeks. And then what we see is we it works great for three to four weeks, and then there seems to be a downward trend. One of the reasons is this. If you put, it works great in the beginning because you're leveling out blood sugar, you're then reducing insulin, uh, you're balancing back out hormones and inflammation. But what people don't realize is you could do a really hard CrossFit workout. And again, we use a glucometer all the time in my practice. We just teach people that's $20. You can buy it anywhere. Um, there are better brands than others. But um, what you do is go into a CrossFit workout fasted and then your blood sugar, you know, should be between 75 and 95 or so. Test yourself after a CrossFit workout. I've seen people at 300. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is pure. That's like a glucose tolerance yeah. test, like yeah. just drinking straight sugar. You know, I learned wow. that lesson about 10 years ago. I had a client, good friend of mine who developed uh, type 2 diabetes, went on a very low carbohydrate diet. And we would do heavy, when we do heavy leg workouts, he'd call me afterwards and be like, dude, he goes, my blood sugar through the roof. And I couldn't figure it out because I, he's like, we had no carbs. This guy's eating low carbs. We just did a workout which should deplete, you know, glycogen. How is this making any sense? And so I did my own research and I realized, oh shit, it was too hard and his liver was just pumping out because your liver stores a certain amount is just pumping out all the sugar and his blood sugar went through the roof. So we had to reduce the intensity of his workouts. Yeah, actually. What, exactly are the, what are the potential long-term effects of that? If, if you're constantly doing that, if you're somebody who loves CrossFit and you're adopting this ketogenic lifestyle or the paleo lifestyle, what are some of the adverse effects that can happen from that? They simply don't go hand in hand. That's the problem. And so when we look at it, so you know, going back to that, Adrenal medulla produces the norepinephrine on the adrenaline. Well, that gets things going, but then your brain tells the pituitary gland again to tell your adrenal cortex to produce cortisol or glucocorticoids. Once that happens, its job as that hormone is to actually tell the liver, just like you were saying, to actually make sugar, right? So it takes stored sugar from your liver and it brings it into your bloodstream. And your liver stores for the average person between hundred, uh, between 80 and 120 grams, depending on the size of the liver. That's a lot of sugar to be able to pump back into there. And then mm-hmm. if you're keto-based though, or if you're low carb-based, you'll say, no, 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 I've already depleted my liver glycogen. And I would say, okay, but guess what? This is even worse. This is much, much worse because the next place to go is your muscle tissue mm-hmm. and it stores over 400 grams. So you have plenty. Now that's survival-based situation only, but now you're doing these really hard workouts and your gains are actually getting less right. because you're breaking down muscle tissue because your tissue now contains glucose plus amino acids, which is exactly what the body wants in fight or flight. Wow, wow. Yeah. That's, and that's not a good combination. So that's, that's a horrible resource. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a terrible horrible. combination. You know, we were talking about uh, sweeteners like stevia and you know the artificial ones and you know, I've had this conversation a couple times uh, with people and where we are always seeking to increase the palatability of food. And this is something we've done, you know, since the beginning of time. We've cooked food and then ever since we figured out we could add things to it and, you know, make recipes to increase its palatability. And sometimes I think, you know, I, I know we're always trying to make healthy food taste better to make it easier to eat. 
But do you think maybe it's a bad idea to always make things so damn palatable? Without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. And I didn't know this, honestly. I mean, this these are all things that I just try to keep myself open to because I was not open to anything. Like, absolutely, like, without a doubt, any of it. And so I'm doing one of my internships, and I'm in, not Sri Lanka, I was in India. And I'm at an Ayurvedic um, hospital or clinic. And I see people eating with their hands and then I see them combining certain foods. I'm like, why you, I'm like, you have a fork, like you can use a fork. That's okay. But when you begin to realize that it's all about the peripheral nervous system and the input, you guys know, obviously all about proprioception, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, how's your body working in space? If your hand touches a certain food, it's already sending, uh, senses to the mind to be able to uh, tell your body which enzymes to produce, Mm -hmm. how to actually and properly digest that food. Well, it's the same with certain tastes as well. So in Ayurveda, we have the bitter taste, we have the sour taste. And so the bitter taste actually helps you to better digest and break down foods. So that's one of the interesting things like coffee, we add sweetener to it, but yet it's meant to be bitter and astringent, which makes it a great digestive aid. Right. But you take all that away when you make it sweet. And you actually then, coffee with sweetener is the best way to actually put on body fat. Because now Mm. you're spiking what? Adrenaline, Mm -hmm. cortisol. And then you're adding sugar to your bloodstream as well. Great combination. Great combination. And then add cream cream to that (laughs) as well. Thanks, Starbucks. So now add all your fat to that, right? Right. And then what are you doing? Well, you have high blood sugar, and now you have lipids in your bloodstream, and you're going to store that as fat. Mm, Really bad combination. Yeah, I would even say that even adding the artificial sweeteners or the calorie-free sweeteners like stevia to something like that, because here's the deal. I think a lot of people don't realize that your body reacts to tastes as well. It's also a signal and it tells your body, you know, certain things to do. And if that, even if the calories aren't present or whatever, um, it can change certain reactions in the body. Not to mention, uh, you know, if it affects your gut microbiome, which we now can see. And maybe correct me if I'm wrong. The microbiome is also responsible for our ability to to gain body fat or to lose body fat, or at least plays a role. It does play a role, and that's the bacteroides and the firmicutes. Mm. So you need a balance between those two in the gut in order to burn body fats. Mm. And so when there aren't uh, bacteroides enough of that ratio, you're not going to be able to burn body fat as well as the next person. Now, again, we're looking at somewhat in isolation. Obviously, there's a lot to it, mm-hmm. but it does play a role. Um, it also plays a role in leptin and gorilla. Like, so that matters, you know, that matters too. And I agree. So what we'll do is if someone's using, like they take that white shaker bottle, who even knows what's in that sugar right there, and you're just holding it there for 10 seconds, you mm-hmm. know, and you're letting that drain into your coffee. All right. Well, what I would rather have someone do is then use some stevia instead. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I would like them to go less of a dose of stevia every week or two weeks. And then eventually, if they're drinking coffee, drink it black or drink it with a little bit of their favorite nut milk. Mm-hmm. I want to go back. Uh, you mentioned Ayurvedic medicine, and I'm not very familiar with it. I was just wondering if you could kind of explain that to our audience, like, uh, you know, further as far as like where it came from, the methods, yes. all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, because you're, you're Western trained in uh, naturopathic medicine. And you're also trained in Ayurvedic medicine. Like it would be, Correct. I mean, explain the difference between the two approaches. Yeah, and and they are they're actually they're more similar than people think. And so, just like a really short story is, I got extremely sick when I was 17 years old, and I'm I'm live right outside of Boston, Massachusetts, some of the best hospitals in the world. I mean, we've got Boston University, Harvard, MIT, Tufts. I mean, there's there's no slouches, right? Yeah. So I went to the best specialists in the world, and they had no idea what was wrong with me. Like literally, no idea because my blood work looked okay. 
And so after that, I was told, well, you know, we know something's wrong with you, but it's either all in your head or you're gonna have to get worse until we can help you. Eventually I got worse. And so I ended up with Addison's disease, myalgic encephalomyelitis, POTS, uh, type two diabetes, and uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Holy cow. That sounds like a massive autoimmune response. Exactly right. So my immune system was shutting down and I was getting worse and worse literally by the month. I would get sinus infections and pneumonia. I couldn't keep up. Like my immune, I was just, my body was dying. It was literally dying. And that's what they told me. And obviously, as a 17-year-old kid, I'm, I'm, I'm a mess, right? And then mm-hmm. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I can't sleep. I have insomnia all night, only getting worse. Um, so what happened was, of course, I went, then went on a, pill, uh, a cocktail of pills and pharmaceuticals. Uh, but I realized after, now again, this is in the late 90s, uh, I'm reading, uh, these are in books, right? Because we're on the internet, at least in Medford, Massachusetts, we're on the internet. Uh, we have like a Commodore 64 computer. Um, is that, um, I'm, you know, I just, I have this love of reading. So I just started to read. And what I realized was that one of the reasons I got there in the first place was, yes, I was that type A kid, wanted to, you know, do well at sports and school and all that. But I had a dermatologist put me on 3,000 capsules of amoxicillin for three years. Basically, I was on two capsules a day for skin. You know, most guys, teenagers, you get some acne. Well, my dermatologist said, you're going to take this amoxicillin. These jars were giant. And I would take two a day for over three years. Consistent? Every day. Holy cow. I would take Benadryl then for my allergies. I would take Claritin D during the day, Benadryl at night to help put me to sleep. I was on a Basically, that's how I grew up and my immune system. So we talk about the microbiome, right? Well, what do you think 3,000 capsules of amoxicillin does to your that's microbiome? Like an, it's like oh. a nuclear bomb. Yeah, that's it right. Goes off, just yeah. sterilizes it. And that's 80% of your immune system's in your gut. Hmm. So then that set me on a quest wow. saying, well, if conventional medicine, if this isn't the route, because I'd plan on being an MD. Like, and I, don't get me wrong. I love MDs. Like a lot of my personal clients are MDs and a lot of my colleagues are MDs. We do different things. We need MDs for acute-based medicine. If I have a heart attack or if I'm in a car accident or, or any one of those things, or any of those things, anything, right. right? Take me to the emergency room and get me acute care and I'm glad that we have it. Mm-hmm. But if our chronic-based illness, I'm sorry, but you're not getting well. Like there's just no hope for you. Mm-hmm. So you'll be put on medication. If you have high cholesterol, you're not told how to rebalance it. You're told, oh, it's just genetic. Why don't we just give you some statins? Well, here's what statins do. It can cause cardiomyopathy. So you may not die from high cholesterol clogging your arteries, but you may die of a weak heart because it can cause cardiomyopathy. It also depletes uh, essential things like CoQ10, which can cause heart failure. Exactly. Yep, exactly. So it's doing the exact thing that you don't want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what I did was then I said, okay, uh, you know, how can I get better? I was introduced uh, just by chance to functional medicine, started looking at some additional lab tests, such as now we're talking about all the time today. We're doing saliva testing, urine-based testing for the gut, stool testing. We're doing hair tests. We do all of that. So that's essentially naturopathic medicine and functional medicine. And what I wanted to do, so I did my internships all over the world because I had a belief that there was one best form of medicine and I was going to find it and Mm -hmm. I was going to teach people about it. Like I was like super passionate. At the same time, I was very angry. Like I was an angry kid. I grew up angry at a temper, all that. (laughs) But- it's funny because you don't seem like that at all. I know. Well, no, I've done even a lot keel. of work. <laughs> That's a lot of work right there. But now, were uh, you, when you were searching, were you still sick or did you finally cure yourself? Um, I, was, I was on the mend because I met my mentor when I was uh, about, well, I was about uh, six years into the process of getting well. And she, now, this is how I did it. Like, she was a naturopathic doctor and she had a subspecialty in, in functional medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. So I said, this is the person that got me well. Obviously, I should study what she's studying. Mm-hmm. And then, but what I did was I said, you know what, though? Let me explore other forms of medicine that might be one best form. What I found was that they really all do work. You just have to know 
who to use what thing with mm. because we're all individuals. Mm. And so Ayurvedic medicine, that was a long story to get to Ayurvedic medicine, but yeah. uh, Ayurvedic medicine is the original form of medicine. Most people don't know that. 6,000 years old. It is the largest recorded history of medical uh, of uh, medical records. It has different branches, even plastic surgery. Traditional Chinese medicine came out of Ayurvedic medicine. And even today, when I was, uh, I've studied all over India, but when I was in India in the foothills of the Himalayas, um, there were rep, the reps of many different pharmaceutical agencies were there working with the Ayurvedic doctors to study their plants to then try to bring back and create patented pharmaceuticals from. Mm. A lot of people don't know this, but a statin drug is actually a patented pharmaceutical of red yeast rice, mm. or at least the extracts from and that. And you can actually still buy red yeast rice. It's like a mild statin all on its own. Without a doubt. And, and yeah. Now, this uh, Ayurvedic medicine originated out of India? Correct, out of uh, Kerala, India. Okay, yes. okay. So how is there, what's their approach? Is it because I know I, I kind of have an idea of Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese, of course, I know Western medicine. What's yes. the, what's the difference? Do they do they work with the body's chi? Is it is it similar to Chinese medicine or is it? Well, even in Chinese medicine, but in Ayurvedic medicine, they they do it best. They call it the doshas or the like body types, but it can do with anything. It's about okay. creating balance. So let's say that we have someone that you know we would call it cold or weak digestion. What they're really missing is a lot of hydrochloric acid, right? So they're they have hypochlorhydria, their inability to produce as much hydrochloric acid. So we would bring then heat to the stomach. What mm. would we use? Well, we would use ginger or we would use cayenne. We would do something heating to build up those stomach acids. Mm-hmm. And then let's say if someone has an acid reflux. Now, of course, we want to figure out why they have acid reflux. Is it H. pylori overgrowth? Is it fermentation in the gut? Like what is it? Lower esophageal sphincter not closing? Like what what is it? Because we can fix it. I mean, I'm telling people that there is literally an answer for everything. I mean, mm. honestly, there is an answer for everything. That's what I'm discovering. Um, and a big thing, uh, so that we would say is if you have acid reflux, well, that's heat, right? So we'd want to bring in cooling. We could use marshmallow. We could use peppermint tea. And we know a lot of these mm. things right now as well. So it's very, very interesting. Ayurveda is all about balance. And it's literally, it translates to the science of life. It is the most complex and in-depth form of medicine in the entire world, and it takes a lifetime to really study and master. But I, I think for anyone wanting to get into it, it's one of the best uh, in the world. Now, when you're going into it and you're learning it, because I, I had an experience years ago. I used to have a wellness fitness facility. Nothing is uh, as elaborate as yours, but I had an acupuncturist in there, and you know I could see actual success when she would work with people, especially in combination with you know my personal training and massage therapy, yes. for example, for pain. And, but the way she would explain things used to get on my nerves. Back in those days, I was very macros, calories, you know, lift weights, correctional exercise, and that's it. And she would talk about the meridians of the body and balancing out the chi. And I, I used to get so like, oh my gosh, like, just don't say that. It obviously, I see it works, but this is the way you're explaining it doesn't make sense. And then I, th- I, I took a pause and I said, okay, let me see if I can explain it in Western medicine or scientific ways. And I started to think about all of the ways that we have referred pain, right? Like the most common one, right? Your left arm hurts really bad, could mean you have a heart attack. Um, There's definitely parts of the body that you'll feel pain that refer to a different part of the body. And this has been documented in Western medicine. And so I said, I wonder if she's working with the nervous system through the needles to create, uh, you know, just a better communication pathway so you don't necessarily feel pain like you normally would. Um, or so you move better because we know if you, the central nervous system plays a role in pretty much everything. Do you do that with your Western medicine knowledge when you look at things through their application through Ayurvedic medicine? For example, you said cold digestion and hot digestion. Uh, you know, do you look at those things and say, okay, I think I can explain that in scientific in scientific ways? I believe, like, if I do anything, that's my job. Like, okay. I really believe that. I believe. 
uh, for whatever reason, I don't know if everyone has this philosophy, but I had never planned to get into you know, medicine or naturopathic medicine or any of these things, but life led me in that direction. And I have a very scientific Western-based mindset as well, you mm-hmm. know, probably like yourself. I get a little uh, bananas when I hear things like, you know, chi and stuff like that, but I believe in it. Mm-hmm. So my job is saying like, this stuff is real. It exists. We actually have scientific research on it. So people are like, oh, I don't believe in Ayurveda. I'm like, how do you not believe in Ayurveda? I'm like, there's nothing to believe in. I'm like, you can just believe in the research on it if you'd like. Because there's a book just called Scientific Studies on Ayurvedic Research that's over 700 pages long. And it's like, it's just study after study after study. The Maharishi Institute, um, in conjunction with, I forget which hospital, actually it was Ohio University, did a study showing that Panchakama actually removed 50% of all the heavy metals and other PCBs and toxins from the body, which is basically a, a certain type of detoxification. What was it called? Panchakarma. And this is an herb? And this is actually a, a detoxification-based protocol. Oh, it's a protocol. The, okay. Yeah, they're doing like manual lymphatic drainage. So that's how, instead of mm. saying abhyanga, which is an Ayurvedic massage, I say manual lymph drainage, which is a type of massage that we so, know in western And you're culture, communicating right? to me much better. Well, that's how I feel. Like you don't yeah. need to go off the deep end because then you alienate people. Like right. we live in, so a lot of the people we work with are UK, Canada, Australia, uh, Europe, and the US. And like, we just don't speak the ancient you know, speak. Right. And so why not bring it um, up to our, uh, you know, knowledge base or our, our uh, dialect, and then people can go back and read it and they can look at it from their perspective because you can say prana or chi, or you can just kind of say like, hey, the nervous system and energy in your body. And it is the biggest overlooked thing. The way that people get sick and the way that people get well is something called the neuroendoimmune system. Your nervous system, affects your hormones. We talked about low testosterone earlier, which then affects your immune system. So if you can figure out the link between what's wrong, what's stimulating, overstimulating the nervous system, viruses, heavy metals, some type of leaky gut, intestinal based permeability, toxicities, work-life stress, and then understanding the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, which we just went over the sympathetic nervous system, overstimulating the adrenals. People talk about adrenal fatigue. Forget about all that. You don't have to use those terms, which people are turned off at as well. Think about it as your brain telling your adrenals what to do. And then that fires your nervous system. All right. So what happens is, well, then you're going to get a reduction or a decrease in testosterone and DHEA. In the short term, they actually spike. When someone is under stress, testosterone and DHEA go up. Under chronic stress, they go down because mm. it's been happening for too long. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have to look at those tests with a grain of salt. Where are you in your life? And then after that, morning cortisol starts to fall. So you start to get a little bit groggy in the morning. You want to mm-hmm. hit the snooze better instead of just jump out of bed. But later in the day, your cortisol stays high. And too high at nights, so you get what's called a broken diurnal rhythm. So now you want to go to bed later. You think you're a night owl when there's no such thing. People say, oh, there's studies showing that some people have higher cortisol at night. I understand that. Yes, I get it. But that's because we have electricity and we can sleep in later (laughs) and lights. You put someone in the outback and you put (laughs) them there for three weeks or or even three weeks. (laughs) A year is great. Believe me, they're waking up when the sun's rising in the morning after three weeks and going to bed when it's dark. I got a question. So uh, it's funny you say this about stress, how short, you know, stress raises testosterone. Uh, or DHA, it's the long-term chronic stress. Yes. The reason why that's fascinating to me is when I've talked about uh, you know, how our uh, the modern lifestyle is inundated with all this chronic stress, I'll hear the argument like, you know, people will say, Well, God, when we were hunter-gatherers and we were cave people, that shit was stressful too. Like we didn't have food all the time, you know, got chased by a saber-toothed, you know, lion or whatever. Um, you know, you were gonna get killed, you broke your bone, you were dead. Um, and I, I, would the argument just be, look, the stress was different. It was acute and then gone. And today it's this mild 
long-term, like never goes away type of stress. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. Absolutely. So I would say that um, there were also less choices in life, right? So like mm. the input right now is so unbelievable. I don't know the statistics because this is certainly not my, my area of expertise of how many times per day we're bombarded with input, right? From advertisements, sure. from lights, like just walking around. Well, when you're walking around in nature, you're getting natural... Um, uh, binaural beats, right? You're getting natural like waves and wind and sound. You're getting all those things that calm the sympathetic nervous system. <laughs> now we've got, you know, uh, phone alerts. We've right. got email Horns, alerts. Yeah, beat, all yeah. that, right? It's like <laughs> all this stimulus on our, again, peripheral nervous system, on our autonomic nervous system. And um, so, and if you were chased by a saber-toothed tiger, hey, listen, after about what? 10 seconds, you were either eaten or you got in a way. Like it was, it was binary. Like you didn't get half eaten. Like that was it. So and if you got away, after, you probably were like, yeah, oh, stress is gone. I'm excited. Yeah, without a doubt. You're going to bang your cave woman. And then and that's it. <laughs> cave woman. And then you're like, hey, let me not go to that watering hole again while the cyber t- tiger was there. Like you learned or you were literally dead. So I do believe that um, now we're in just chronic stress instead of up and down stress. Mm, yeah. I and mean, we're just having evolved. We didn't evolve to, to deal with that stress and that particular way. You said the nervous system affects the hormones, which affects the immune system. Is it always in that order or can it go the other way around? Like can, if, if something affects the immune system, then then does it go to the nervous system and, and vice versa? Yeah, or? that's a great point. It is. It's a, it's a circular loop, which okay. is why it's so hard to get out of it. So what happens is a lot of people don't know this, but when you produce cortisol, we talked about it producing the glucocorticoids, right? So it produces sugar. Uh, basically, it, it's going to uh, draw glycogen from the liver or, or anywhere. I mean, it will draw it from, if you have food in your system, it will use that. It could use muscle tissue, uh, but your body will survive. Like it's meant to survive. That's why you can't trick it. I mean, I love the term biohack, but the truth is you can't hack your body. Like you can do things to kind of like modulate it up and down, uh, but it's going to figure out a way eventually because it's meant, it's built for survival. Mm -hmm. So what happens though, is when you produce higher levels of glucose, and again, you don't have to be eating glucose, you can be stressed, your body will produce more insulin. When you produce insulin, you actually produce something called interleukin-6. When you produce that, you're going to have higher levels then of inflammation or immune-based response. That inflammation can cause weight gain or puffiness. I really believe that when people are close to their goal weight and they're doing everything right, I've talked about this before, that when... it's usually not body fat. You're just, you're literally swollen with water because you're inflamed. So when you look a little softer overall, it could be food sensitivities, it could be gut issues, it could be higher levels of stress. It's inflammation that is then, then looping back around like you just said. So like, let's just say you have intestinal permeability, really common with all the antibiotics and alcohol and you know all the other stuff going on is that you're spilling proteins even from healthy foods in your bloodstream and that's causing an immune-based reaction. Yeah. Well, that immune reaction is a stressor on your body for mm-hmm. sure. So that... Absolutely, that's correct. So I have a question for you uh, along those lines. Uh, we've talked about on the show how and, and, and speculated that it may not be a good idea for athletes to consume food right after a workout, workout because yeah. of the, the systemic inflammatory response. And maybe not for everybody, but maybe for people with who are prone to you know, intestinal hyperpermeability. They probably wait until that inflammatory response goes away. Is Are we giving people the right advice? Uh, it's complicated, but there there are scenarios when you want to do some feeding and some not. If someone is looking to actually get the benefits of the fat burning potential from that workout, just to keep that going where the blood glucose uh, levels are a little bit lower, that's great. I mean, I think you guys agree, and, and I would agree that you're not looking for any one workout to transform your body. You're actually mm-hmm. looking for the, the body of your work. 
and to do maybe interval-based training, which is a little less maybe calorie burn at the time, but more metabolic effect over the greater term. However, I would say this is that um, after a workout, we've seen some really good research now. And I was actually talking with this about uh, with a, a big name in this industry. I just won't mention his name. Uh, they were going to do IVs for people right after they work up Myers cocktails. Mm. And so that would obviously be a lot of vitamin C and it'd be magnesium. Great things for your body, right? Boost your immune system. The problem is this. We've actually seen it be detrimental to take in a lot of antioxidants after a hard workout. Mm. And you're not allowing your body its natural inflammatory process mm -hmm. to begin to repair those muscles. So that's huge. But the other thing is this. Let's say it was a really hard workout. What do you want to do after a really hard workout? Because cortisol levels are now up. You want to test cortisol and testosterone are direct inverse ratio. You know, if you work out too hard, I mean, studies are all over the board, but usually it's over 40 minutes of a really hard workout. Cortisol is going to be higher. Testosterone is going to start to drop. You know, it's just that inverse curve. So when I look at that, I say, well, what's the easiest way to turn off cortisol after a workout? Carbohydrates, not protein and fat. Hmm. So that's why you have to be careful with a client who doesn't, who's, if they're a hard gainer and they want to gain carbs after your workout, right. absolute fruit, just fruit. So fruit is anti-inflammatory and it's also going to cut cortisol. It's the only food essentially that does it. You can do sweet potatoes, you can do anything that you want, but make it easy to digest and um, then stretch. So I, I talk about this all the time. It's like you stretch after your workout, not because you want to become more flexible. You can do that if you'd like. You stretch after your workout to turn off the sympathetic nervous system yeah. overdrive mm -hmm. and turn on the PNS, which is going to start recalming the body oh good we're on so, the yeah. right track that's what we we have a yeah, we incorporated that in one of our programs yeah we have one of our programs where we teach people how to prime their workouts or, or set up their workouts and also how to do it at the end yeah. and at the end is where we incorporate the static stretching so i mean from everything you're talking about it sounds like we should really focus more on how to get into the parasympathetic state like do you have any like ways that you know or you tell your clients as, as far as like methods that you promote with that Yes. And we certainly don't need any more help getting into the fight or flight, right? The sympathetic. Right. So it always is, like you said, it's getting that parasympathetic. Well, how do you do it? Um, you know, that's the challenging part. It's all the things that we don't want to do because it causes us to slow down. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Meditation, so, walking. Yeah. All, exactly. <laughs> Breathing. Like, what do you do? It's like, well, you basically try to do nothing. You know, it's like, well, that's easier said than done. Okay. So a sauna is a great way, but don't like a lot of people exercise in their sauna. I'm like, well, you know, like that's such a Western based mentality. I'm like, just sit there and breathe and meditate and relax and, you know, focus on gratitude. It's like all of those things is trying to get to sleep, um, you know, at around 10 PM or a little bit early to work with the natural diurnal rhythm of the body uh, it is doing meditation. It's doing Hatha yoga. So a lot of things that we recommend, yes, we'll recommend the high intensity interval training. We'll actually, we've actually gotten a little bit more, believe it or not, into some steady state cardio, which we got away from for like a decade. And the reason we did is that it doesn't stimulate the uh, sympathetic nervous system in the same degree. Mm -hmm. And it's great almost as like a recovery workout, which oxygenates the body mm -hmm, to a greater mm -hmm. degree. Gives circulation and everything. Exactly. Because yeah. it's not, um, it's not anaerobic. It's more aerobic and anaerobic's great. We know that, but like, it's all about balance. So the more someone is sympathetic nervous system dominance, especially like the hard gainers, the thinner people, the smaller joints, we need to do more of the parasympathetic. And so, uh, I mean, you guys are, you know, absolutely on the wrong track. It's, it's uh, right track. It's the meditation. It's the Hatha yoga. It's the stretching. Uh, it's foam rolling. It's float tanks. Uh, massage, but gentle massage. A lot of people are going for deep tissue massage. It's painful. Pain turns on the sympathetic nervous system. You're in a survival state. Someone is literally with their elbow in your back. Dude, I've mm -hmm. been massaged like that before, and I, I'm in a cold sweat while I'm getting hammered yes. by someone's mm -hmm. elbow. So for sure, I could tell. And now, why do we do that in the West? Like we take 
everything and make it intense. Like yoga, mm. power yoga, yoga with weights, you know, <laughs> Hot sauna. Yoga. Let's see how long I can Death go yoga. and, you know, and inside the sauna, how long yes. I can last. Like we do everything like that. Why, why do you think that is? Is it different? Human nature. Do you think it's, is it different though in, in other countries with roots in, you know, Ayurvedic medicine, for example, or do they treat it differently? That's a good question. It, it is a good question. And, you know, it's part of the psyche for sure more in the West where it's like, how can we one up that? Like even as health professionals, like, oh, well, that person's keto, but I'm even more keto. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. They do 50 Look grams. Look at my pea of, strip, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, they're eating 50 grams just in broccoli, but I'm actually not doing any vegetables at all. So I'm, I was like, what are we doing? And, um, so yes, it's definitely a more Western-based mentality, but there's, you know, there's a competitive gene in humans. And I think that's what really has helped us move forward. Absolutely. That's how we so. evolve. Somebody has to go fall off the cliff, right? To find out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Can you fly? That's that's hilarious. And that yeah, Adam always, killed me. Yeah, Adam always makes this comment of how like the people who need to need to relax are the ones that aren't, and the ones who oh, need yeah. to like kick up their intensity. You know, the the yogis or the dudes with the long hair like smoke weed all day long and don't do anything. They need a little like you know amp up in yeah, their in their lives. Basically, to, yeah. And that's yeah. Ayurveda in a nutshell. Like that is it. The vata body type or the ectomorph are always on the go, and they want to do everything. And then the endomorph, which is typically the you know the larger or body type, you know. They're just born. They have larger calves. They're just, you can t- just tell, you know, by the body type, that's something that I never used to believe in, but it, you know, the, the truth is the truth, uh, is they want to do the yoga, right? They should be <laughs> the ones doing the daily exercise, whereas the ectomorph, maybe three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday for a hard gainer. You're telling me a hard gainer should work out every day when the that body's was the more biggest, catabolic in the first place? That was the biggest mm-hmm. mistake that I made as a kid because I was definitely the ectomorph and the hard gainer. And what was I doing? Training seven days a week, sometimes twice in a day, thinking With that basketball was, in between. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, that's hilarious. So what do you think about like uh like tools for example i mean are you try do you try to do everything all natural or like like for example like uh, one of our sponsors is a uh, juve red light therapy like do you see benefits of tools like this yeah absolutely i i love saunas i love infrared saunas uh juve is another great example of that um i love binaural beats you know yeah. literally just putting mm-hmm. those on i like whole tones i'm not a, I'm not sponsored by them i just think they're another great one brainfm.com so brain, 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 brain fm actually you have brain fm as well oh yeah, yeah, and they I are love, good. love them. Um, so uh, yeah, and I actually I pay for that. Uh, so I love all of those. And you know the truth is that like you'll cycle through things. Right. So I, you know one of the reasons why I love all of these gadgets is because they keep our Western based minds interested, mm-hmm. right? So I'm yeah. wearing this ring right now. I won't I won't give the name of the ring in case you guys have different sponsors for that. <laughs> oh, it's either Motiver or Aura. So it's all, <laughs> exactly. it's all good. Yeah. So this right here, um, I'm not going to wear this forever, but I I test all these things for myself, like as mm-hmm. fun, right? Cool. So I said with this, I'm like. Listen, I want to start looking at my sleep again. How restful is it? Am I staying asleep? Am I waking up too often? Am I getting my 10,000 steps a day, which I'm a huge proponent of? Because again, that's a parasympathetic nervous system activity, as long as you're not checking your email while you're walking. And, um, you know, but with this was it kept me interested, uh, kept my mind in it, and I started to have fun again. And that was kind of like a big part of it. So, mm-hmm. I like all of them. I really do. Uh, this, these things worry me, the smart gadgets. And so I test them for EMFs and I also mm-hmm. test them for radiation, electronic as well as magnetic um, frequencies and then radiation because I do think that we have to be careful with that. So it, yeah. it's funny you bring that up because I think Sal speculated this just the other day when we were talking that that's going to be the next big thing that we're going to hear a big scare about because of all these wearables and tools and now we're putting gadgets under our skin. And the and phone like, right next to your crotch all the time. Right. Yeah. So what, what's your theory on that? Well, so 
I, I believe, because again, I like to really be honest in my research and I have read research on it. And there's actually more research in Europe being done on this than in the United States. And they're showing it actually affects our DNA at a cellular level. So um, mm. this could become a huge issue. It's uh, potentially affecting children with ADD, ADHD, as well as IQ. Uh, I think we need a lot more data. I also believe that some people are susceptible to it more than others, uh, which will be interesting to see if that's actually affected by the microbiome, if that's actually affected by uh, other things within the body itself. Heavy metals, I think, is a huge one. If you have heavy metals in your body, you're more of a beacon for electromagnetic frequencies. Like that's just going to make sense. Like you literally have metals in your mouth or in your body from, you know, aluminum in your tap water. Uh, so I think that that matters. And one other piece I wanted to say to that as well, when 5G comes out, no one's talking about 5G. Yeah. A lot of people don't know the level uh, that that's going to be. Hmm. Like it's 10x what we're at right now with our 4G. So when we look at that, we say, well, what's that going to be? Because remember, the 5G does not have a great span of, of width. For, I'm not an expert on 5G, so I don't hmm. want to pretend that I am. Uh, but you're going to have them all around you. They're going to literally be hmm. on streets, like everywhere. So it's in more ways. intense of a frequency? More intense of a frequency, closer up. So here's what I do. Because again, I live in the real world. I'm going to have wireless internet. A lot of people just directly plug in. I don't. What I do is this. I test my house. I have an EMF meter and I just make sure that my bedroom that I'm in for eight hours a night is EMF free. Hmm. And so this is really interesting because I have two young daughters, four and six years old. And I'm like, I need to, I need to figure it out for them because they're probably more susceptible. Only makes sense. They're tiny. They're like 35 pounds. They're going to be more susceptible. So one thing we found is that their mattresses, believe it or not, had coils in them. So most mattresses, a lot of them have metal coils. And there were baby monitors in their room, and there were white noise machines. Those are two of the largest EMF-based frequency generators. And then their coils were picking up those EMFs. Again, they're invisible, so you don't see them. So what we and so their mattresses were literally sitting here generating these frequencies. So we replaced those out with uh, coil-free mattresses, and um, and actually that made a huge difference. It oh, did. Wow. It did make huge. a big difference. Huge. Yep. Wow. So so you're thinking that there could this could be a problem in the future. We just need a little bit more data. And the problem is it's long term, right? Like so it's yeah it's, right. We're we're gonna fuck ourselves up for a while before we figure it out. Decades. Right? Yeah. yeah. Some people feel it right away. Now again, some people really feel. Uh, because the ner nervous system based, you know, issues that they feel it right away. And it's hard for me with the science and Western based mindset to say like, how, like how, like, I said, I can't see it mm -hmm. happening. We don't have a ton of data, but I believe it. Like we're, we're our bodies are frequencies, right? So like when you look at it at a quantum mechanics and quantum physics level, this is no longer woo-woo based science. We are literally vibrating beings. So if we enter in a new vibration or frequency that is not part of nature, would that change us? And mm. I would have to say it does. Wow. I don't know, but Such I would a have great to say way to it's got to have some kind of an yeah. impact. I know yeah. Dr. McCullough sleeps in like a Faraday cage over his bed to block all EMFs and stuff like that. Right. What, you know, we should have probably done this in the beginning of the episode, but what, what is it exactly is a, is a naturopathic doctor? What, like, what do they specialize in and what's different about them than, let's say, your normal MD? Yeah, so a medical, so you study the same two things basically for the first two years, which is your, you know, your biology, your chemistry, your physiology, toxicology, all your ologies, I always call it. And then after that, a medical doctor will study uh, pharmaceuticals and how to use those uh, in the treatment of acute or chronic based diseases. And as a naturopathic uh, doctor, you 
just decide to use the best of natural-based substances, whether oh. they be herbs or vitamins. Uh, you still use functional medicine lab. Well, actually, so there's a huge difference. Um, naturopathic doctors will use functional medicine lab tests, and they will be um, saliva tests, urine tests, uh, stool tests, hair tests. And what we do is we don't diagnose, treat, or cure disease. We look at the underlying root causes of why people have the disease in the first place. It's my belief that diseases <laughs> don't really exist how we think they are. We give a name to a set of symptoms that we call a disease so that we can then bill insurance and prescribe as pharmaceutical. Hmm. Rheumatoid arthritis is literally the destruction of, let's just say, your finger joints or joints in general by something called CD8 cells in your body. Mm -hmm. CD8 cells are triggered when they see something that's foreign to the body and they create something called apoptosis or cellular death, programmed cellular death. They tell that cell to kill itself and the cell actually will kill itself to preserve the body. Well, but you have to ask yourself, like, why is the immune system telling that cell to kill itself in the Mm -hmm. first place? Mm -hmm. So we look at all the different reasons of why that might happen. And again, I'm not the first person, like, I always tell people that, think of every area of medical or science. I'm not the expert in that. What I try to do is bring all of those together in a truly integrative form of medicine that hasn't been done before. Meaning like Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, bioregulatory medicine. You mentioned acupuncture earlier. That's not a form of medicine. That's a submodality of traditional Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. Acupuncture is amazing, especially for nervous system based issues, anxiety, sleep issues, etc. However, when I was in China in a traditional Chinese medicine hospital studying there, we never did acupuncture without herbs or other lifestyle based things as well and foods. So what we do is we try to work on the whole person and figure out why the autoimmune. And now we know that 90%, over 90% of all autoimmune-based issues have some type of intestinal permeability where proteins are moving through the gut wall and the immune system are marking them as some type of antigen or pathogen to be removed from the body. Now, there are many theories. It could be something called molecular mimicry, where the body looks at that protein and sees a similar one to the cell or inside the cell and causes that cell to destroy Mm -hmm. itself. Or that bacteria, because there is something called lipopolysaccharides as well. This you'll start to hear more of as well, because people are doing the keto diet, right? A lot of it's saturated fat. Mm -hmm. Well, when you take saturated fats and you enter them into a gut with a lot of bacteria, what happens is it can transport that bacteria through an intestinal wall if it's permeable enough and into the bloodstream. Now you've introduced a lipopolysaccharide, that's actually sugar, that you move through the gut wall into potentially being taken up by a cell. If that happens, the body can still look at that cell as harboring something that's toxic to the body and then can use this specific immune cell to create apoptosis within that cell, basically program cell death. And now what do you have? Well, you have destroyed joint tissue. Hmm. But is it your body's fault? I don't know. I don't know. But what I know is that we can, and again, we don't treat, diagnose, or cure disease, but we can fix the underlying root causes. People are in our practice. We see these things miraculously go away. Well, that, that makes wow. sense with the, with the saturated fat because there seems to be like this big difference between how some people are perfectly fine with a you know, relatively high saturated fat diet and other people, their lipids will go all over the place. They'll have all kinds of you know, terrible health effects. So it kind of makes sense and, and, and why, why there seems to be that line in the sand where some people are totally fine mm-hmm. and other people, it's like, okay, we got to stay away from the saturated fats. I, I mean, I, I really want to qualify this because this is something that at least people want people to think about, all right? So I want just, we're not going to say it's right or wrong for everyone. If we believe in genetics and we believe in our genetic testing, we know something that's been around now for over 30 years, and that's called the APOE genotype. Okay. This is a specific allele. Everyone gets one copy from each parent. There's a two, a three, or a four. That's all you can get. Mm-hmm. So you're either a two, two, I won't go through them all, but there's a two, a three, and a four. You can get one copy of each. So anyone that has a four, they've found that the higher the fat in their diet from anything, 
but specifically saturated fat, the greater their causes of inflammation in the body, Mm. which leads to then Alzheimer's, dementia, and cardiovascular-based disease. If we look at those as the leading causes of death, we can say, well, that would be great for us to reduce. Now, let's go to the other side of the spectrum because for those people, believe it or not, if you have an APOE, especially 4-4, that specific allele, that protein, what we're looking at is uh, those people that take in a lot of saturated fats, it actually does affect their blood cholesterol. Now, here's the interesting thing. They only make up 26% of the population. So when you do a study, saturated fats don't matter, right? Mm -hmm. Because it only affects 26% of the population. But that's really detrimental for a quarter of the people out there. Oh, yeah. And then if you look in the other side, the 3-3 is the normal one. That's um, I say normal, but it's the norm. It's 55 to 66% of the population, a 3-3. So they can kind of get away with the things in the middle. But the 2-2 is more uh, of a... Of a, actually, it's a, more of a Neanderthal-based gene. Only 2% of the population has this, but they can have up to 35% of their diet pretty much in saturated fat, hmm. a larger amount, or fat in general, mm-hmm. and not of an issue. But now when we start to talk about keto and we start to talk about things like that, and I say, okay, short-term, absolutely, I get it. Could be used for cancer-based tumors, could be used for different medical-based reasons. But if we take our fat to 70%, I don't see... That's not that's not in the literature at all for long term, especially for genotypes. Like that much fat, should we really take one macro and throw it through the roof to the detriment of the others? I don't believe that that will hold up, except in medical based instances where we're trying to really. What are we doing with keto too? Really, a lot of the benefits, which no one's talking about as well, is coming from fasting and autophagy. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. <laughs> I was like, Absolutely. if we clear the case studies and research based on that. Are we really getting it just because we're leveling out blood sugar and we're mm. fasting for 12 hours or more? Yeah, it's right. mimicking fasting in many people. There, there's some there's some studies on long-term, but it's all on, you know, children with epilepsy or people have like a medical reason for, you know, for going on keto, yeah. in which case- it's, Intervention, yeah. Yeah, in which case it's better than the alternative, which is to having seizures all day long. Totally agree. And I think that's what yep. people are pointing at. Let's get into fasting a little bit. That's something that we, we kind of- uh, uh, I think we recommend to people to intermittently do every once in a while. And I think it's something that's turning into a popular thing to do that I don't know if they're like getting... more of a weight loss method. These right. Days. And I and used I, to call that starving yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what, what we typically re- recommend for people, and of course, if you're healthy and can, can do this and balance, right? I think we say if anywhere between 24 to a 36 hour type of fast once a month is something that we think is better than somebody who skips meals for 16-hour window and does that every single day. What are your thoughts on on fasting? I love that you guys are saying that. I don't believe the 16-hour fast a day is a great thing. Yeah. 16 hours a day. I just don't. And the reason is that uh, we, we, we lab test this. So it's no, again, like a quarter million client appointments of data. Like It's just like, I don't want to guess. Like I just don't because I want to give people the right information. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I see people fast... They're, again, getting the kids ready. They're running off to work. They're trying to meet deadlines. And they're drinking coffee in the morning. Yeah. You're not really fasted. You spike cortisol again. You're going to have sugar in your blood no matter how you state it. You're not fasted. You cannot eat and not be fasted. Meaning like if we're talking about glucose. Mm-hmm. Because when we say fasted, we're saying like, oh, well, yeah, I'm fasted because I haven't eaten. Sure. But like you're fasting because you want the benefits of mm. fasting, right? Like if you're going hypocaloric because you're skipping a meal a day and so you take out five or 600 calories, I get it. Like, yes, okay, so that will work too. But um, what I like to say is uh, we do, so in my practice, we do this in four ways. We do a 12-hour overnight fast for every human being alive. So essentially from six or seven o'clock, whatever you can do it at night to 12 hours the next day. And what I would say is you can actually fast until you get going. So if you have a slow morning and you wake up and you meditate and you just take a shower and you kind of ease into the day, no need to eat yet. 
you know, you're at a slow fat oxidizing stage, right? Mm -hmm. But once you start revving up, that is when you need to put some food in your body, ideally, uh, for, for at least especially that ectomorph, that vata body type, the person who's more catabolic. They lose weight without trying versus gain weight without trying, right? Mm. So um, I'm a big proponent of that. Like six, seven o'clock at night, stopping eating two to three hours before bed, one of the best things you can do to get a better night's sleep and just be able for better digestion. But then, so what I, I'll just give an example for myself. Like I stop eating about 6.30 at night and then I don't eat until 7.30 the next morning. That's 13 hours, right? Because I start my day around 7.15 or so. And I'm so I'm going to start just by sipping on like some smoothie and kind of getting into the mm-hmm. day. For a lot of people, they could go maybe until like 9 or 10 a.m., but not to lunch. And the reason just goes back to, again, that, that cortisol-based spike. Uh, in women, it doesn't happen to men as often. But in women, I would say it is detrimental to, to skip breakfast. And the reason is we see hypothyroidism from keto-based diets and low-carb diets and long-fasted diets in many, many women. Mm-hmm. And I would obviously, I would honestly say it's more of the norm than not. I think it's evolutionary. Mm. I, think, I think, you know, if we go through the hunter-gatherer, uh, you know, theory, men being the hunters, we probably evolved to go without food for longer periods of time and be active. Women being the gatherers, they probably came around small bits of food uh, throughout the day as they're gathering, you know, roots and tubers and, you know, nuts and seeds and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they're also the ones that bear uh, the child. And I've seen that as well. I've seen women go on fast consistently and start to experience things like hair loss, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, with, and, and, and the guys don't seem to, we seem to have a better resilience towards, uh, you know, towards fasting. I actually, I agree with that. And I, and there's then science to back that up as well. So what happens is when uh, this is again, specifically more specifically for women, when you produce your first uh, adrenal-based response, which is norepinephrine, it stops making that conversion from TSH to T4. And then when you produce glucocorticoids, you actually block the conversion from T4 to activated T3, which happens inside the cell. Mm. Or you take active T3, which is the active thyroid hormone, and you create something called reverse T3. So it's unusable. And I believe the reason that this has happening in the female body, and again, this is uh, it's, it's theory, but my belief is this is that if you're in a stress-based situation, there's not enough food, there's not enough water, water, there's war, there's whatever there might be, you're not. You're telling your body, this is not the situation to bring a child into this world. Yeah, agree, uh-huh. That's my belief, and, and I, yeah. I see it play out with infertility in my practice. So what do we do? Well, we start to calm down those cortisol levels, mm-hmm. replenish the body with the B vitamins, the vitamin C, everything that's missing, zinc, whatever it might be. Again, you can lab test those. You can find out what you're low on for your vitamins and your minerals. We put those back in. We get them into more of what we would say like a safer, calmer environment, uh, which again is more mindset and framing that, and then not the excessive um, low carb. And again, I'm a huge proponent of low carb. I've been doing that since like the late nineties, but not forever. And mm-hmm. then I, we, then we also do it cyclical based, meaning like, uh, we'll do refeeding meals every week or cheat meals, whatever you want to call it, you know, flex yeah. meals. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and also what do you consider low carb? Because some people are like low carb means no carb, which is different than what I would consider low carb, which is like a hundred, 150 grams mm-hmm. a day. It seems to me too, in terms of fasting, that you know the ancients had it right, right? So they use it more in their spiritual practice, in a state of you know, like a meditative state where they were calm. So mm-hmm. it's just interesting to see these things kind of come around. Like you're, you're, what you're saying makes a lot of sense as far as you know being like super active and on the go is probably not a good time to use it. Exactly. So, well, just getting back to your point, I don't want to uh, not answer that question. Uh, we'll recommend a once. So we get people healthy first. That's really important. Right. Get them balanced. Then we'll do a once a week fast, uh, but it's 24 hours, but it's actually not a day without eating. So it's very simple for people to do. So every Sunday night, 
I do, I'll, I'll do, you know, a blowout meal on Saturday night, you know, whatever I want. And it will be like, you know, to the nines <laughs> and then Sunday, you go back to normal eating. And the reason people f- don't fast the day after you get crazy with alcohol or whatever. Right. And I'm not a big drinker of alcohol, but, um, you don't want to do the next day cause you're then re-regulating blood sugar the next day. So it's going to make your fast that much harder if you do your fast the next day after that big cheat meal where you're going to go hypoglycemic most likely the mm-hmm. next morning. So I take Sunday as a normal day unless the Patriots are playing. And then uh, on Monday, I'll do the fast. I'll do it from Sunday night until Monday night. And so that's 24 hours, but I'm still having dinner with my family Monday night. And during that fast, I try to do water only or I'll do hot ginger tea, which is great for opening up the lymphatic system, kidneys, mm. all of that as well. Mm. So I, I did I did a protocol for about six months and it was the single most effective thing that I've ever done uh, for my particular body. Now, I've, I've had gut health issues for... You know, I had to deal with them, I'd say, for the last maybe 10 years or so. Um, and, you know, I manage it with what I eat. I eliminated certain foods and, you know, uh, can, uh, see, uh, cannabidiol actually helped me quite a bit. CBD, um, you know, helped me with that as well. But what I did maybe about three months ago um, was the last time I did it is I did a once a month 48 to 72 hour fast. And the reason why I did that is I was reading literature on fasting and I, and I read that uh, in animal studies, they showed that a 72 hour fast would almost completely replace the immune cells uh, in cats. And I thought to myself, well, if, if, if my issues are autoimmune and I know that fasting induces apoptosis and, and then stim, you know, stem cells are stimulated and I feed myself and then maybe that'll end up happening for me. And I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but I'll tell you what's the single best thing I ever did. It was a six month period and my gut got progressively better to the point now where it's better than it's been in a long time. Was I on the right track with that? Obviously, I got great results with that, but is that something that you think would work for other people? Yeah, that's that's really great to hear too. Um, so one thing is, like we said, we walk people up the the level so that every day for 12 hours to maybe up to 14. Um, and again, that depends on how quickly you get going during the day. And then the once a week or maybe just once a month of that one day of week fast, the 24 hours, we do quarterly two 48-hour to 72-hour fasts. Oh, okay. So these are all longevity-based. I mean, this is like legitimate. This is, if there is a fountain of youth, it's fasting. Mm. Honestly, the mm-hmm. second fountain of youth would be sauna based on the finished study with over 20, you see the 20, oh, I can't remember the number right now, thousands and thousands of people over uh, more than a decade. Mm. And they found that it reduced cardiovascular risk by 63% cardiovascular risk, dying of a heart attack. It's unbelievable. And it reduced all cause mortality. That means every form of death was reduced by 42% by doing 19 minutes a day of sauna. sauna. Not even infrared sauna, just 19 minutes a day of sauna for four to five days. Um, So I'm not, I want to get back, uh, I want to answer your question of fasting and the cold plunge is a really great question. So the, the fasting, we do the 48 to 72 hours um, every, every quarter. So that's mm-hmm. a big thing with us. We're a huge proponent of that. So the greatest amount of autophagy can p- take place. Now, autophagy is b- basically autophagocytosis, which means that your body is going in when it has no more food coming in and scavenging cancer cells. Right, all, the weak, all the weak ones, right? Exactly. Whatever is the, that shouldn't be there. Because right. now you gave your body time. Because mm-hmm. every time you eat, believe it or not, your immune system turns on. Like it's like, hey, is this good or bad? Is this good or bad? Like it's, it's always asking. Because you're... you're Intestinal is, is your intestines are essentially a single cell. You know, when we look at the lamina propria, we're looking at, okay, like your immune cells can go into your intestines whenever they want. And when food comes out, then it's going to get attacked uh, as well. So 
I think that that absolutely did help you. What I would say, and my rebuttal to that is because also when you have no food coming in, your your actual microbiome is shrinking, mm-hmm. right? So every time you fast, you don't have enough good carbs, meaning vegetables, uh, your microbiome is shrinking. So that's what I worry about long-term health with keto as well as the microbiome. Sure, like there's studies on this, but like, what about this part? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is about balance. And what I would say is, is always look at what is going on. Is it H. pylori? Is it candida overgrowth? Is it small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? Is it parasites? Mm-hmm. And if you've done the lab testing and everything is balanced, yes, then I would look at sealing up that gut wall and making sure that's not a vagal nerve stimulation of your gut because that can cause you uh, gut issues as well. Mm, interesting. But for sure, you can figure that out. But the fasting, no matter what, is absolutely great and it does help to reset the immune system. Best way to think about it is this, and this is what I wrote about as well in my book, is when you, when you look at the overall immune system, think of it as a Pac-Man game. And think about not adding more of those little like uh, discs or whatever they are that you're eating up, right? So like, let's say that you have uh, three Pac-Men inside of a, a, a ball and they get to eat three of those pieces every day and there's 10 of those pieces. By the end of the three days, they've eaten up all the bacteria. They've eaten up everything that shouldn't be there. Well, but every time you eat new food, more come in. Mm-hmm. So we can look at it as like you have to fast in order just to catch up. So I really believe that that fasting is the closest thing we have to the fountain of youth. Mm-hmm. Back to the cold plunge. Just talk a little bit about that. This is uh, this is controversial as well. When I talk about this with people, like the there are no night owls, is very controversial. That I say, I just believe that I can oh, back good. that Let's up. Let's get controversial. Uh, <laughs> and the so cold showers uh, are not for everyone. Cold plunges are not for everyone. Oh, mm. and the reason is this: cold plunges are amazing for stimulating dopamine, the immune system waking up the body, but it does that by what? Revving up the nervous system. Yeah, norepinephrine, yeah, right. I think, is that's the right. of the roof. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. So when you rev up norepinephrine, that's the first phase. That's the adrenal medulla phase of the hypothalamus adrenal axis. So, um, okay, great. If you're someone that needs the stimulation, like it, let's say you are a lower cortisol person because you're more of the endomorphic body type. I recommend absolute cold plunges, hot, cold showers. But if you're more of the ectomorph and you're already super sensitive in the first place, you're telling me that you want to jump under that cold shower? Wow, no. very interesting. You yeah. want the heat. You want the rest, the relaxation. Hmm. The heat actually will, will calm the nervous system where cold will stimulate the nervous system. Right. Yes, it produces more immune cells in the short term, but it also stimulates uh, all of the peripheries. No, I can, I can 100% agree with you. Hmm. So here's a question on that because it does feel good to spike cortisol. This is why people do it all the time. Cortisol feels great. Oh, it's uh, addictive. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm wondering, do, you, do people's behaviors inadvertently or maybe subconsciously, do they change their behaviors to give themselves more cortisol because their bodies have become desensitized to cortisol? So in other words, I'm a high stress person, not good sleep, drink lots of coffee, uh, I work out hard, and then my energy starts to drop and lower. So I'm seeking out situations that raise my cortisol more. I work out harder. I find myself more late to appointments. Uh, I, you know, maybe I drive differently. All of these subconscious ways of spiking cortisol. And because I've had clients like this where they come to me and I'm like, listen, uh, spin class is not the workout you should be doing. You're type A, you don't get good sleep. And they'll tell me, but I feel fantastic afterwards. Do you find people changing their behaviors to seek out those cortisol spikes because their bodies have became maybe, you know, desensitized to cortisol? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at it, it's one of the best drugs in the world, you know, and our body makes it and and caffeine makes more of it. And so when you say like, oh, well, you know, I'm not myself without this. And Mm. but at one point in your life, you were yourself. But what happened is you just never 
found the balance between being able to rejuvenate in the parasympathetic nervous system mm -hmm. and then work in the sympathetic nervous system. So um, I t completely agree with it. And the worst part is we're doing it later in the day. Like I could get behind some of the things that people do earlier in the day, like 11 a.m., 12 p.m. or before. But when you look at a natural diurnal rhythm curve of uh, cortisol and diurnal rhythm, just diurnal just means we have two phases during the day. Mm -hmm. So our cortisol naturally starts to ramp up around 4 a.m., same with the highest levels of thyroid. That's when blood pressure starts to increase. These, these are all like natural processes. Melatonin starts to go down because melatonin's uh, in um, uh, juxtaposition to cortisol. When cortisol starts to rise between 6 and 8 a.m., we should naturally wake up on our own. But again, if we're starting to get burnt out or a little groggy or cortisol doesn't rise as much, but cortisol should be at its highest peak around 8 a.m. And then it gradually decreases all the way throughout the day till about 4 p.m. where it really starts to fall out. This is interesting because people are like, oh, I, need, I start to get tired around 5 p.m. I'm like, you should start to get tired <laughs> around 5 p.m. Yes, like, yeah. That's that you should actually, that should happen. Um, <laughs> you don't want to ramp it back up. And so um, that's, that's what we look at. And it gets, it's at its lowest at actually 9.30 p.m., uh, which is why some people can feel a second wind once if they don't get to bed by 10 p.m. Mm. Uh. Do you think it's better to work out in the morning then when cortisol is naturally at its highest levels? Do you think it's smart to combine? Because, you know, exercise is going to stimulate that sympathetic nervous system. It should be stimulated in the morning anyway. Do you think that's the best time to work out then? Yeah, that's I mean, that's a great question, too. Um because that's a challenging one. You, if you're already overstimulated, you don't want to work out first thing in the morning. If you're someone that overly produces dopamine, like if you're revved, I don't know, and you're already on the verge of just basically like burning out, I don't think that you want to do that first thing in the morning to start your day when your cortisol is already going to be at its peak. Mm. So for the people that are hard gainers, uh, I'm sorry, hard uh, to lose body fat, they they look at carbs and they gain weight, uh, they're a little bit more sluggish in the first place. Yes. Wake up, um, do workout potentially on an empty stomach if that works for you. Mm. But if you're someone that again is very primed in terms of nervous system and you're a hard gainer, you need to eat before the workout as well. You can vary that between anywhere between 30 minutes before, 60 minutes before, easy to digest. That will help with your cortisol spike during your workout. Uh, it won't lead to more of the catabolic states. And that workout should probably be somewhere between like 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. Hmm. during you've already gotten you've had a meal in your body maybe two you've started to ease into the day now you can do a workout mm -hmm. and so that's mm -hmm. what I've seen work and that that actually took quite a bit of time for us to kind of figure out in our mm. practice as well. Yeah, we that I've was, seen that as a personal trainer. It's yeah. just through my experience training people and myself. Yeah, that speaks yeah, we've to seen me that a lot. That yeah. speaks to me totally. Now I have some selfish questions to ask you because um, something that I've just never been able to get to the bottom of is um, I have psoriasis. Mm. So when you have someone like that, what are your what are your areas you're looking for right right out the gates? Like I mean, vitamin D deficiency. Like what else are you probably looking at with someone who has psoriasis? Yeah, that's when we look at that, we're looking at some type of um, stress as well as gut based issue. So the greatest flare ups we see with psoriasis are based on certain food sensitivities, based on the protein of that food, not necessarily the sugar of the food. So we look at both short-term food sensitivities and long-term with an IgG food sensitivity test. Okay. The major ones we see, and we get phenomenal results. So just a little advice for anybody with psoriasis: if you have not gotten, if you have not gone gluten, which includes wheat and yeast dairy and egg free try that for 21 days okay. that might be enough for people to get a remarkable reduction in symptoms at the same time i recommend running an organic acids test as well as a stool test you can do the food sensitivity test as you want as well um to look to see if you have some type of intestinal based permeability if you have yeast overgrowth bacterial overgrowth we see a huge connection between that and then the same thing is the body's ability um to 
to regulate stress. Vitamin D is a huge part of it. Right. But actually, taking vitamin D helps. But what we've seen work better, this works, this is in the research as well, is ultraviolet light. So it's the vitamin D, but it's actually the light as well. So people during the summertime that get exposed to sunlight, their psoriasis goes down yeah. to a much greater degree. So it's actually, it could be the sulfur. Believe it or not, the sun helps to uh, produce vitamin D with cholesterol, but it, it actually works in another way. The body produces more sulfur, which is naturally detoxifying uh, as well. So it's interesting. So, so what's interesting to me is that I never had it as a kid. So I grew up around the lake, outside, playing all the time. And when I turned 19, I moved to San Jose. I got a job that was indoors, and I literally worked 5 a.m. to like 10 p.m. almost every night. At 25, all of a sudden, psoriasis comes out. No idea the connection to sunlight, anything at this point. I didn't even know what it was. It took me years before I even figured out what I had starting to show up. And uh, I do notice that more than anything. If I can discipline myself to get out there and get that daily sunlight, that and stress, and then also... The gluten has been a big one for me too. So I've eliminated that pretty much in my diet. And if I ever do allow it back in, I always know. In fact, I've now got it down to where if I like go have like a cheeseburger or something, I know within like hours, I can, I already feel myself like itching or picking at it right away. Yeah. Yeah. Alcohol is a big one as well. I don't Uh know if you see yours flare up with alcohol. Red wine uh, can be another one that, that flares it up. That's that's good to know because yeah. we just went on a trip and I've noticed that it flared up from this last trip, but we were all off our diet and, and we drank at a party and so that I don't really drink that much and we have been this last last month or so. Mm-hmm. What are the most, I guess, what are some of the standard labs and tests that you run on people? Like what are things that people, because I get questions like that all the time, like I'm going to go get a bunch of tests done. What should I get done? What should people look at? Yeah, I did a I did a podcast called like what to run when you're at when you go to a doctor's office. Like if you pay health insurance, you should get your blood run, right? At mm-hmm. least get that out of your health insurance. So what I what I said is like here's what to ask for. And you want a complete blood count, you want a lipid panel, uh, you want uh, but on top of that, you also want to ask for something called homocysteine, CRP. And you want to make sure that they run your hydroxy, uh, your 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Those are things they no longer run that they should be running. Mm. Because those, a lot of people worry about their cholesterol. But if you have, your cholesterol is a little off, but you have good homocysteine and you have good CRP, your chance for a heart attack or cardiovascular disease go way down. The issue is when people have high cholesterol, they have high homocysteine and they have high CRP. Homocysteine being inflammation of the arteries, CRP, C-reactive protein, being um, systemic-based inflammation, acute-based. Then you're literally a, you're a disaster waiting to happen. And we need to fix that right away. And that's because you have high cholesterol, probably have some plaque in the arteries, but your arteries are also constricted. So now there's not a lot of blood flow. That's when we're looking at. Oh, so that's a bad combination. Really bad. Because only half the people who have high cholesterol have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. The other half don't have high cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So there's another factor. And that's in anyone, those arteries can be really squeezed tight. And when they're squeezed tight, if you have any blockages, you're not going to be able to push that blood through. So homocysteine, CRP, vitamin D. Vitamin D is not okay just because the range is 30 to 100. The range truly should be between 50 and 70. Some people are saying more 50 to 80. So that's for overall health. Some people, will. I don't go to 100 and don't recommend it because then you're looking at uh, hypercalcemia of the blood and you're also potentially turning on the immune systems too much. But for those people that are battling cancer, they might be working with their doctor saying, okay, let's get your vitamin D to 100, maybe more to really ramp up your immune system. But you should be working with a doctor at that point. Yeah, low vitamin D levels is is very strongly correlated with cancer. Almost always, right? Don't they almost always have low vitamin D levels when they're tested? Yes, but I mean, so we do so much testing. We do thousands of labs. We literally, we ship labs all over the world. Um, And what we found is this, and this is no exaggeration, three out of 100 people 
are are okay with for vitamin D levels. Okay. Literally three. And that's, that's in the summertime. It. That's and, it. Like anytime. And here's why. People go out in the summer and they go out on the weekend. But what about the five other days? Yeah. Like that means you're not getting your vitamin D stores. So we see people hover somewhere between, I would say, 12 and maybe like 37 for most people. Mm-hmm. So they're just like barely there. Because some even labs say it to 20. But So that's your blood work, okay? But that's mm-hmm. when things are really bad. Remember, your blood's called a homeostat- uh, homeostatic fluid, which means it will rob from other parts of your body to make sure that it's level. Mm-hmm. But what we do is we, uh, I have something I just, um, it's my, I call it my big five. And so what I look at is the organic acids test to look at all of your minerals. And I look at it from a, I love the organic acids test. And I use this because it's urine, so you can do it right at home, but it shows waste. So it actually shows the byproduct of whether you're using these things or not. So it's a great test. We look for candida overgrowth, um, C. diff. We look for mitochondrial function. We look at ketones. We look at fatty acids. We look at um, neurotransmitters, the waste products of those. And we look at all your vitamins, your B vitamins, your vitamin C, CoQ10, biotin. It's an amazing lab test. Then we look at your mineral levels with a hair tissue mineral analysis. Um, You can look at that through other ways as well, but it's an easy one to do at home. We look at heavy metals on that as well. Aluminum, mercury, cadmium, arsenic, uh, so we see some pretty wild ones as well on there. And then we do an omega-3 test. So omega-3 test is easily one of the most underrated lab tests out there because cardiovascular disease is the number one killer in the United States. What if we could wipe that out? Mm-hmm. Well, it's there's an amazing research study that shows those people with a 9% saturation rate of omega-3s in their blood have a 90% risk reduction rate for cardiovascular death. We just did that. We just that did that alone. omega-3 test through Everlywell. I was yeah. just going to say, I would, I would actually send that out to you guys. You already yeah. did it. That's yeah, we did that. And everybody yeah. was, I was the only one that was within normal range, but I supplement with cod liver oil on mm. a regular basis. I think Doug was, yeah, was pretty was good also. because of that, yeah. That's yeah. a great tip because in my practice, the only people, this, this is really important because as humans, I believe that we were meant to probably get some type of fatty fish mm-hmm. or some type of shellfish or something like that in our diet, or maybe just a lot of algae. I don't know, but we were meant to get omega-3s. And the reason is, is that when we look at that, the only people that ever pass that test are those people eating sardines, wild salmon, mackerel, uh, there's one more, or trout three to four times a week. If not, if you're not doing that, your omega-6s are going to be higher than your omega-3s. Mm-hmm. So sure. now, I've, I wish I remember where I read this, but I read that if you, if you still have like a, a poor diet where you're eating a ton of 6 and 9s and not very many 3s, but then you're supplementing with the 3s, that it won't matter. That the 6s the and 9s are competitive with the, with the 3s and that it will in turn fill up the cell and then the 3s don't even – and you basically just shit it out. Is that true? Does that – I would love to see more data on that. I actually think that it's a competition. And I think by adding in more of the threes, um, you will do a lot better. And I have seen that play on the lab test. Now, the goal should always be to eliminate as much of the sixes as you can, but not to the point where you don't eat omega sixes. I mean, you, humans are really meant to be somewhere around a three to one ratio of omega sixes to omega threes. You see that in nature. If, if people are eating, uh, let's just say like, you know, they're eating grass fed uh, beef or pastured eggs, whatever it is it's about a three to four to one ratio mm-hmm. still, like even with grass fed. So when I look at that, I say, okay, well, you know, that's pretty much what we see in nature. If you look at nuts, well, they're higher in omega-6s. So it's not that we don't need the omega-6s. We do. We need them actually for cell membrane health. They're essential. Yeah, without a doubt. And so I would say um, supplementing is going to be a very good thing for most people. Okay. Yes, but mm-hmm. reduce the omega-6s. Yeah. I, go with, I go with the cod liver oil just because it also has that natural you know, vitamin D in it as well. You, yeah. you also m- mentioned the grass-fed beef. How important do you think that is to uh, incorporate that and how, how detrimental is it for us to just get some regular beef from the grocery store? 
Yeah, this is another controversial topic uh, that you know, I talk about sometimes. And um, I did a show called Mounting Evidence Against Meat. And it wasn't actually just against meat. It was against a higher protein diet. And that's why I get really worried about people who say they're doing keto, but it's not keto at all. Right. It's old school Atkins, right, right. you know, and it's like, oh, I just, I'm having just this huge steak. And like, I don't know how that became keto. Like I just, I mean, I don't not, because that's not matching up with the ratios. And if you eat that much protein, it actually spikes blood sugar. So people don't get that. Like, and again, like they're not supposed to, because that's not common knowledge. Like that's in-depth nutritional biochemistry. When you eat a big serving of red meat, it will most likely spike blood sugar because of the high glycemic load, uh, because of what it does within the body of when it's being processed. And protein is the, in our field, is the magic macronutrient. Can't have too much of it, always have a lot of it because right. it builds muscle. So it's yes. always great to have it. And I was there as well, for sure. Like when I was trying to get, so my frame naturally likes to sit at somewhere around 100, let's say 160, 165 pounds. I like to be 165 to 170, like for overall health. But at one point when I was doing, when I was getting natural bodybuilding, I said, I'm getting to 200. That's my goal. And I did it, but to the detriment of my body. I was eating 275 to 325 grams of protein per day. Holy cow. And uh, Constipated. It was, it was just, <laughs> overall, it was not a good scene. I could barely raise my arms above my shoulders. But what I'm saying is you can do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't always mean it's healthiest. That's all. Um, so that uh, amount of protein, just understand that it's the highest thermogenic effect, uh, highest thermogenic food, which is great, but it's also the most taxed in the body. It requires the most amount of water, the most amount of work for the kidneys, the most amount of work for stomach acid. It's a hard food to break down, and it's the greatest increaser of IGF-1, insulin growth like factor one. Great if you're trying to build muscle and be anabolic. I'm not going to deny that. One of the worst things you could do if you're not trying to grow tumor cells in your body, cancer cells as well. So we just have to be careful with the amount we take in. And it showed if 19% of your diet was less than, uh, 90% of your diet, total diet was 90% or less of protein, you were pretty much good. The lower, actually the better in terms of getting cancer, those types of things. But, um, so I just don't want to go overboard, I would say in that category. Yeah, I don't know if that answered your question at all. Yeah, in the yeah. context of inflammation, uh, a super high protein is it's pro-cancer. If you're really healthy, you're probably okay. But right. the amounts of protein that are being recommended in our field exceed anything that's ever been studied. I mean, you know, the studies show 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound of body weight, but I know people 2 grams per pound of body weight, 2.5 grams per pound of body weight. Like, show me the long-term studies on that. There pretty much are none. It's just an insane amount. And, and I think starting where you just said is the right thing to do. I think if you, just for simple math, because we can get into like 0.8 per kilogram of body weight. I mean, if you just start at half your body weight and you say, is that enough for you to build muscle? If not, add more. Like, right, right, right. I mean, it's so we like to really break things down to a foundational level because some people will need more. If you are naturally, like you're genetically, you put on muscle, you put on size easier, you're not going to need as much protein. But if you're a little thinner, you might, but at the same time, you probably have poor digestion of protein. You probably need more carbs as a fuel source. Mm. And so we look at all of these things. We really try to make it bio-individualized, but everyone has to start somewhere. So you mm -hmm. need a foundation. I, so I had this interesting experience when I, so years ago, I started were incorporating a vegan day. And really what it was, was a, a, a low protein day. Um, and then I started incorporating the longer fast. And I had this really interesting effect and it's anecdotal but now I've heard it echoed from other people who've done the same thing and that's when I go low protein for like one to three days um, I get this rebound effect when I introduce protein later on where I almost feel anabolic like my body wants to build more muscle and I did read some literature a long time ago to show that the body can come kind of become desensitized to protein to where the more of it you eat after a certain period of time you just end up converting more of it to you know, glycogen and less of it's being used for repairing tissue. 
is there anything to support what I what I experience when I would go low protein and then bump the protein up and notice that that kind of muscle building effect? This is one of my favorite topics to study in the uh, body transformation field and fitness field is that I believe everyone's body has some type of set point theory um, uh, or it's called the set point theory where your body likes to be at a certain weight. Okay. Like my body likes to be about 10 pounds less than I kind of like sit and that, that I am. And if I didn't exercise and I didn't really watch what I ate, like I would lose another 10 pounds or so. Okay. So I believe that you're taking in a certain amount every day that's helping you create where you are. Now, if you didn't exercise, you'd maybe have less muscle or sure. whatever it might be. But if you remove that for a couple of days and then you put it back in, protein synthesis will most likely increase. You'll be able to uptake more of that because it's trying to maintain where its set point is, which okay. is why sometimes it's harder for people to, you know, I, I mean, so someone could be 5'8 and weigh 150 pounds to be perfectly healthy. Another person, I have a client who's 5'8, they weighed 205 pounds. That was their healthy weight. But wow. they had calves like Easter hams. Like they were a massive like individual. Justin. Yeah. Like, I haven't seen Justin's calves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's never trained them. Take his word they're for twice it. as big in South South and, and I, <laughs> we train them three days a week. So they're just like they're just massive. And Good like DNA. And so when you look at that and you can say, oh, okay, that makes sense, you know, for that individual. Like that's where they're gonna sit at. So I do agree with you, and I do believe that um your body, when it's lacking something or lowers it, it will increase protein synthesis, which means that, you know, let's say you could absorb 20 grams, 30 grams, 40 grams. Of course, it's all arbitrary based on the size of the individual. Um, great. But if you're, you haven't gotten protein for two days and you take in 50 grams, I bet you're probably going to absorb almost all That's of that. That's what it feels you know? like. It's yeah. exactly what it feels like. I wanted to get back to the food intolerance discussion because, so I have a, a niece and a nephew who have severe food allergies. My nephew is the older one and my, and my niece is the younger one. And now my sister has another uh, child who's, uh, you know, he just turned a year old. And the approach to food allergies, now there's a severe food allergy, not intolerance, it's like anaphylactic shock type yes. stuff. But the approach has changed with my nephew who's older. It was like, because oh, his dad has got severe food allergies and my sister has some, you know, uh, some signs of autoimmune issues. And so they said right away, avoid these particular foods for the first two or three years of life. Um, and that's going to help prevent, you know, these potential food allergies. Well, now with the youngest one, uh, there was, a, I think it was out of Israel, there were some studies showing, you know, peanut allergies were so low there compared to other parts of, you know, other developed nations. And they went deeper to study why. And there's this like popular, you know, baby food cereal bar that's made with peanut flour. And they said, oh, it's potentially this desensitizing effect that's happening, which is preventing these food allergies. And so she's done that now with the youngest one. And he's got the least food issues. I think he has no food issues, whereas his sister and his brother have terrible ones. Now, anecdotally with food intolerances, I've noticed with myself, I'll avoid a food that I'm intolerant to completely. And then if I introduce even the smallest amount, much worse effect than you know than I may have had before. And I'll notice this from clients as well. And I'm wondering if completely avoiding these foods is is not allowing me to desensitize my body. In other words, is it a good idea to identify a food intolerance, reduce your intake, but not eliminate it completely? So that, there's a couple of layers to that question right there. So the, the anaphylaxis is a true food allergy. Everything else is a food sensitivity. Okay. So an allergy can cause the swelling up of the throat and you know, the anaphylaxis that's life-threatening. So what we do is we say for sure, avoid those foods and continue to avoid them 
because most likely that is an innate and a humoral based response okay. that you're never going to outgrow. Okay. Now, in terms of how to help that so that doesn't happen, we've seen varying research on both sides saying that it's actually maybe potentially the most helpful if the mom is eating that food while nursing the child because those antibodies uh, hmm. actually will then move through the child's gut because... Again, this is because the mom doesn't have the allergy, so then the antibodies go through the milk to the child with the food or whatever. Correct. Okay. Well, and the other big thing is that a child's gut is permeable, like their intestines. So when I talk about the gut, I talk about um, you have your esophagus, you have your stomach, and then you have essentially 26 feet or so of intestine, 20 feet um, or so of small intestine, five to six feet of colon. Well, that's supposed to be pretty much closed. That's supposed to be the outside of your body. Only the good stuff after it's broken down to amino acids or you know sugars and um, smaller fats can it be absorbed through. Well, for the first two years of life, it's, it's purposely permeable, which then allows the mother's immune cells to move through into yeah. a child so that, that you, the mother gives the child the immunity. So there's a lot of saying that that's a great way to introduce all these foods to children. And if the mother's avoiding it, maybe that there's other issues. Um, one thing I would say is, I, I'm a big advocate of, of introducing for those first two years of life different types of foods and a varied amount so that the, the immune system can get used to seeing those. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with gut-based imbalances now and the exaggerated response of the immune system for food sensitivities, which is different. So yeah, food so, sensitivities is kind of a delayed response. Okay, so now with the food sensitivities, is it better to avoid it completely or to have a little bit of it to maintain, you know, so you, you, you don't, you desensitize your body a little bit or you don't create a, a larger response when you do have it later on. So what we do is if there's an IgG food sensitivity, and again, you can do this right at home with just a finger stick. Uh, what happens is this. If you're mildly sensitive, we eliminate for six weeks. If moderate, 12 weeks, and then for severe, six months. Mm. And the reason is that you're actually trying to hope that because immune cells pass on memory. So we're oh, trying to go through a few cycles exactly. of that. Okay. And then hopefully it's been desensitized and it actually works. Mm. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. We can see it work. Now, what you were saying though, is feeling worse. Sometimes what happens is you actually decrease inflammation and create a new normal when you've removed the food. When you're always having alcohol, when you're always having these foods, you have what's called your current normal. Well, if you get healthier and you go to do these things again, you feel sometimes terrible. So the contrast. It's the contrast, I believe, and because you, you're creating massive inflammation. And that's what I've always thought, too. So that's why I asked you, because I wondered if there was something to, you know, avoiding it and potentially causing a stronger reaction versus the desensitizing, you know, effect. So one part that I have to say is there is truth to that in terms of not the protein, because remember, an allergy... Um, or food sensitivity is based on the protein, the immune system's reaction to a protein in the food. And all mm -hmm. foods have proteins, even you know a, a low-protein-based food like a vegetable. But what we're looking at is when, uh, like just say something like dairy, you actually do start to produce less of the enzyme the more of it you take in. Uh, the, the less of it you take in. Mm. So there can be a desensitization there oh, to the I enzymes. See. And that has to do with the sugars though. Okay. So that actually has to do with lactose and lactase versus the protein, which is casein or whey in dairy. Oh, that's that's very different. Much more complex than I thought. Very complicated. <laughs> so, so along the lines, talking about mothers and and breastfeeding, so what, are, what are your thoughts on the importance of like a, a vaginal birth and then also breastfeeding and not using like formulas? This is a hard one because I never want to put any woman down or because there's certain situations in life, right? Like sometimes you have to have a C-section. I don't think an elective C-section, in my opinion, would be the best thing to do for the child, right? Sometimes maybe a woman has to do it. But, and again, I don't, I'm not, certainly not one to throw stones for sure, but a vaginal-based birth is the really the only way 
that that child's going to literally swallow and pick up the bacteria that they need to populate their gut. So that's very, very important. And as the child's going down the birth canal, they're actually squeezed. And that squeezing helps with the initial uh, waking up and movement of that lymphatic system mm. and the drainage of a lot of toxins. I mean, literally, they've been in the womb for what, you know, 40 weeks. So these are things that Mother Nature intended. And we, as anyone in the medical field, is never smarter than. Like formula could never replace uh, breast milk. Now, I want to put a caveat to that because a lot of moms are working two jobs and they can't feed their child, but maybe could they pump? I don't know. But formula, here's the issue. It's, it's two things. One is when a child, believe it or not, like a baby, an infant puts its mouth to the mother's breast or it's even close to it, the mother's milk actually changes. It will change immune cells. It, it literally adapts to the child. And they're mm. seeing this now. Mm. Plus, Formula could never mimic uh, breast milk because breast milk actually has more sugar up front in the foremilk, and then in the hind milk would be saturated fat. Mm. So if you want to figure out the best way to gain weight, we already know because it starts at birth. Wow. <laughs> Drink sugar, which spikes your glucose and brings up insulin, then take in a lot of fat. And that will just shuttle it right into the That's body. That's true because babies are never ripped. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not. We they're try nice to, you know, we're doughy. going by BMI and yeah. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're chubby off. as hell. I've done, cali- uh. done skinfold calipers and yeah, they're way off. Yeah. The uh, your baby's forty percent body fat. I'm like, That's I think not show ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, and, and formula is also cow's milk um, for the most part, and the protein molecules. I heard Ben um, Greenfield on your show, who's a amazing guy as well, and just talks about it, like humans. In my opinion, were not meant to drink cow's milk. Um, goat, sheep, uh, the smaller the protein molecule, the easier to digest. Now, mm. can we? Of course. Like we adapt to most things. Is it healthy first? No. It most likely causes a lot of inflammation, certainly high levels of IGF-1. Does it matter on the cow type? Sure, to a degree. But the truth is that the protein molecule is large, very large, and much harder for humans to break down and Does digest. Does it also matter like the ancestry as far as like, you know, where, you know, you're from? Like say I'm Northern European and I can, you know, I do better with dairy, for instance. Yeah, give them a reason to keep eating dairy. Come on, man. <laughs> yes. Don't be Cutting it out. So, I, well, first I would do a, a food sensitivity test just to check from an IgG perspective because a lot of people are like, well, I don't get any gas, I don't get any bloating, I don't get any of that. That's that is actually a digestive based issue from the sugars versus a long. And there's also an IgE effect, which means you get hives or psoriasis based flare up. But an IgG is 24 to 72 hours later. And it means that your body just feels a little bit more sluggish, a little bit more inflamed, a little bit more brain fog, a little bit more, you know, joint based pain. So what I look at is the IgG test. I like to look at that. Mm. The other thing is like, well, sure, in the industry, I do agree with that uh, to an extent, but it was most likely warm milk that was raw that contained the enzymes to also break down the food. It was not consumed with meals. Uh, and it was also not the degree of protein, meaning like um, what's six grams, eight grams, you know, in a glass of milk or is fermented into a yogurt or kefir. Mm-hmm. And it's also different. So that's all the lactose has been basically um, cultured out or, or uh, fermented out. So there are different ways of looking at it. I just think that if you were in the wild, you would not be milking a cow mm. um, or getting dairy in that way. I think you can, I think you can actually be very healthy from eating some raw goat's cheese or raw sheep's cheese if you do enjoy dairy. Yeah, raw milk is different. I mean, it's it's got it's na- it's got natural bacteria in it. If you leave raw milk out, it doesn't tur- go sour. It turns into, I think, cream. Um, if, you know, res pasteurized milk can go sour. Um, and then what about the homogenization uh, pr- process? Because mm-hmm. raw milk, it separates and homogenization 
they like cram these fat cells into these small holes, making it suspend itself in milk so it never separates. Does that affect the fat? Does it make it less healthy? Yeah, all of this is absolutely correct. And so, you know, what you see in a store is nothing like even like real milk in the first place. No. So <laughs> if someone wants to make the argument, hey, what do you think about having some raw milk that I get from my friend down the street? I can't give the recommendation because technically it's illegal in the United States. Mm. You know, it's that gray area. Just like technically CBD is kind of illegal on a federal level. Although yeah. we use CBD, yeah. we think it's great. We looked at all the research and you can't overdose on it. It's incredible. Uh, raw milk for building back up the gut and for, you know, like all the healthy enzymes and bacteria. Mm -hmm. Sure, there can be some benefit. I'm just saying if you have the option go for goat or sheep because it's easier to digest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the homogenation is like probably, you know, I go back and forth, but it's probably the worst thing you could do to milk. Yeah. Even if it's grass-fed, <laughs> even if it's organic, if it's homogenized, you've literally taken a fat molecule and blown it through like the little um, espresso type thing at Starbucks or whatever it is, right? So you've blown up these fat molecules. And the only reason we do that is because people in a grocery food store don't want to see the the milk and the cream separate. Yep. That's the only reason we do it. Yep. And then it makes it that much harder to digest. So milk is just extremely hard to digest and just not ideal for most humans. Yep, mm. yep, yep. I, yeah, I know. I, I actually read some studies where um, they were fed, I think it was on the Weston A. Price uh, uh, website where they were feeding cats raw non-homogenized milk versus cats who had you know pasteurized homogenized milk and the difference in, in their health was quite significant i only give my kids i can't find raw milk because you know thanks to the government keeping me safe from milk uh you know it's illegal <laughs> yeah. but uh, i do give them the when they do drink milk the the non-homogenized uh you know version where, with the cream that's separate you just got to shake it before you serve it people are so dumb <laughs> well that that and i always ask people like why are you giving your kids milk in the first place not you i just yeah. asked the question sure and they're like well it has calcium and i'm just like well did you know almond milk actually has 30 percent more calcium mm. and um so then like we can get away from that argument like oh it has vitamin d i'm like yeah but the milk the vitamin d in milk is vitamin d2 it's like a synthetic not as great a version in the first place so i just ask people because milk's a part of our culture like that's yeah. all it's, it's been a part of our culture and just with the amount of like ear nose and throat issues i see and kids coming off milk and then all of a sudden they their skin clears up cradle cut uh, clears up and um, they don't have the allergies anymore. It happened to myself. Like I could breathe through my nose for the very first time in 25 years when I eliminated dairy products. Mm. And I'm like, but I still didn't want to give them up because I wanted to have whey protein because I love whey protein because <laughs> it's very anabolic and there are a lot of benefits because of you know all the different things it can do for your immune system. Sure. And so I still didn't want to give it up. So I'd still drink it. And I'm like, ah, you know what? I think I should probably give this up because yeah. I kept testing positive for it as well. And again, you can lab test it. Like, uh, so I don't even guess. People are like, oh, that's not true. I'm like, just just lab test. Like, mm, listen, yeah. like you can figure it out. We don't need to argue yeah. over this. Just lab test. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it makes Justin fart a lot. That's about yeah, it. He just yeah. farts all over the place. What are you talking about? <laughs> Throw me under the bus. Uh, so CBD, let's talk about CBD for a second. Um, you're saying you've, you notice all these benefits from how, when, how do you guys use CBD in your practice? Or should I say hemp extract? Because however CBD, you want to call yeah, it. Exactly. Sure. <laughs> whatever, whatever the best and most legal term is uh, to this date right now. Uh, you know, it's and it's hilarious too. And the only reason that there there's just this big issue around it is simply because I believe that there's they want to pet it somehow and use it pharmaceutical. They already are yeah. already Epidiolex is about to get you know uh, it's about to get approved for use in intractable forms of epilepsy, um, and they're studying CBD uh, as a edgevent therapy for cancer because of the anti-cancer effect. So of course. That's why they're trying. Yeah, they're yeah. going to make something that's completely non-toxic illegal. But now, yeah, back to the question: How do you how do you guys see it affecting people? Like, what are, what are its uses? It's absolute best use that we've seen in our practice. And yes, it works tremendously well for epilepsy. So mm -hmm. we have to know that and it can work great. And again, we're not treating, diagnosing, nor curing any disease here. Mm -hmm. But for cancer, 
But the main reason we use it in our practice is as an anti-anxiolytic. Mm. And that is reducing any type of nervous system anxiety in people. Insomnia, um, they can't, they're always moving, the feet are twitching, like yep, they're just yep. always going. Uh, nervousness before a meeting. I and mean, we, it's life-changing for people. You combine that with some magnesium, like a, a uh, more of a, like a full spectrum magnesium yeah. where it's not just uh, a citrate and you can literally uh, change people's lives and who that have had that have suffered from anxiety because, you know, maybe the four of us don't have the issue, but there's a lot of people, they can't speak in a meeting at work. They get nervous just like having to like, you know, yeah. speak up or in class like students mm-hmm. with all of these, you know, ADHDs, like why can we use, why can't we use something in its plant-based form that they've used up to 600 milligrams or more in studies with children? The average dose. So the other, here's an issue though. And, um, you you can't use just five milligrams of CBD. Sure, it's usually, ha- it's usually like twenty to fifty or something. Exactly like that. Yeah. right, twenty five to fifty milligrams with it, ideally right around forty milligrams, and that's the minimum. That's the starting dose. Mm-hmm. Now for kids, you can do less, but work your way up, and hold it under your tongue if you're doing the liquid for two minutes to let it absorb through the capillaries. That's good to know. If not, it's gonna your liver is gonna pass it first, okay. and you're gonna knock off at least a third. Wow, that's so. good to know. We because we have we we do we work with Ned, and they have a liquid dropper, and they're one of the best ones that we've found. But I was just kind of squeezing it in and swallowing it right away. So I need to leave it under there for how long? Two minutes. Two minutes. Allow it to move through the capillaries under your tongue. It will go directly in your blood versus your digestive system. Uh, just kind of move it in your cheeks. Anything in your mouth will allow it, and then swallow it. Mm. Um, and you'll get a much. You'll actually get a faster benefit as well. So when I first started mm. using, I never believed in a million years I would promote CBD. And the reason is <laughs> that uh, you know I didn't want to be like, oh, okay, you're a naturopath. And now you're promoting cannabis? Like, yeah. of course Hippie. you are. Like, <laughs> why don't you just grow your hair long and, you know, dread it out? No, Weird. Like, yeah. Listen, uh, like, this is one part of the practice. But, um, but so I said, and anything I promote, I always use myself first. And so I said, I'm going to use this for six months. And I use it every day for six months. Mm-hmm. And the first two weeks, and this is going back to your, you know, kind of your points on does your body get used to it? I got amazing benefits right away using it. Like I was in like, felt so calm, so relaxed. I would go home from work and I've had like a tough day or just, you know, some pretty complicated, you know, cases, things like that. And, uh, but I'm a, I'm a pretty chill guy for the most part, but then my girls are off the wall and we're trying to get them ready for bed. So I would just put that CBD, I'd put two droppers under my tongue and, uh, and I'd be feeling great. And then you kind of seem to maintain it. You don't get that first like euphoric based sure. state after a little while. However, it's still working. And then I believe that is when after using it for a while and you get the benefits, then use it cyclically. Because now I don't use it every day, but when I use it now, it works again the same way. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't even know what the question was at this point, but <laughs> that is basically um, how we use it. And we use it tremendously anytime you need calm and peace and relaxation. Do you notice any changes in, uh, in any lab tests from people who use it uh, you know, symptomatically? Like, do you notice any changes in inflammatory markers, uh, you know, uh, IgG antibodies, um, because I know that cannabinoids have an immunomodulating effect. Are you noticing anything like that? Like, like rather than just symptomatically, you know, is there something else that's happening? So the problem is that we don't give it in isolation. So I can't answer that question. Okay. We're always doing it as part of a protocol. So if they come in with anxiety, we're also testing their calcium to magnesium ratios. We're testing the cortisol. We might be using things such as a adrenal soothe product that contains like ashwagandha and phospholocerine yeah. along with the uh, magnesium glycinate along with CBD. And so they, they look at a broad spectrum. Sure. Okay. Now we're regulating cortisol. We're regulating the nervous system with magnesium, which um, stops the sympathetic nervous system overdrive. And we're using CBD. The problem is like, since there are not going to be harmful effects, try it. 
Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the funny thing is you get all the benefits of marijuana except for two with CBD. Yeah. And that is the antimicrobial, which they still don't know yet. It's antibacterial, but they don't know if it's antimicrobial. Right. And the and you don't get the um, increased appetite that you would get with yeah. THC. You also don't get high, which is boring. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't I mean, get that. But I'm talking for the, the medical part? benefits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm talking about medical benefits. So like for cancer, you would actually, maybe you want to use cannabis because it increases appetite. Right. right. But for everything else, CBD will give you the exact same benefit. And for those people, this is an amazing study. So there were over 982 studies at the last time I checked on CBD benefits. And so for the government, government to try to take that away is just, it makes no sense. There's obviously an agenda. But what they found was this, the people that get paranoid from smoking marijuana, if you gave them CBD, mm-hmm. it actually started to block those receptors, right. the CB1 and CB2 receptors. So they didn't get the paranoia. That's mm-hmm. how well it works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so, amazing. so it doesn't, it doesn't uh, have an affinity for the two cannabinoid receptors, at least from what I read, uh, the two, you know, the CB1 or CB2 receptors, but they think it, it, it enhances your body's ability to utilize its own endocannabinoids like uh, like anandamide. And then here's a speculation, and I've read a couple articles on this. I don't know if you know anything about this, but I would love to hear your opinion on this, that there may be uh, something known as uh, endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome, where people simply are not producing, maybe because of a high-stress life or whatever, they're not producing adequate amounts of their own natural endocannabinoids. And these are the people that seem to benefit the most from using you know, ca- cannabis or cannabinoids. So let me say why I agree with that, but I don't have any science behind it. Okay. So I don't have any data yet on that, but I completely agree. And we also don't know fully if the um, cannabinoids are taking up space on the cell receptors of CB1 and CB2, or if they're like down-regulating the you know, other effects within those receptors. Mm. But a big thing for me is, and this is why I believe it's uh, correct, someone in a high-stress lifestyle is going to really just blow through their vitamin C, their B vitamins, and their glutamine, as well as zinc, like right away. Like those are first-line defenses. When your B vitamin levels start to fall, now I'm not talking about getting rickets, right? Or Mm -hmm. scurvy. Like we're talking about like that level, but we're talking about functional deficiencies. You can't buffer stress as well. Well, what happens is this, and a lot of people don't make the correlation. If you don't have enough vitamin B6, you cannot turn tryptophan to 5-hydroxytryptophan which will eventually become serotonin. Mm-hmm. And if you can't make serotonin, well, you're not going to have enough ability to make melatonin, which right. means you can't sleep at night. Hmm. I believe, so there's all these regulations, these pathways. Same with thyroid. Look at thyroid. If you are iodine deficient or selenium, or, so iodine deficient, you're not going to make enough thyroid hormone. If you're selenium deficient, you're not going to be able to convert T4 to activated T3. Right. So we're looking at these things and I'm saying, I believe all of it. Like, I totally agree. Someone could be serotonin deficient, but is it because they're deficient in the things that actually help to produce serotonin? And how do they get there? Well, probably some type of Western-based lifestyle or viruses, heavy metal uh, toxins, uh, autoimmune, like all sorts of issues as well. Wow. Do you see the, the, the Western medicine move in the direction of what you're doing? I mean, how long have you been doing this for? Uh, well, I've been in the health and fitness industry since 2000. Okay. And I've been doing functional medicine for seven years. Okay. Are you, have you seen any trends in, or, or changes in that last seven years? It feels like, it. I don't know, we're in this bubble. We talk to a lot of people like yourself. Yeah. So it, I may be just, you know, uh, my perception may be just skewed. Does it, do you think it's, the, it's changing? Because I know Western medicine, I have to advocate for it just because it, it takes a long time because of the scientific method. So it takes forever to get to certain points and they have to see the, the scientific evidence for everything, even though the thousands of years of anecdotal evidence, you know, shows you that there's something there. Do you, are we trending in that direction or are we going to see more people like you or are you still like counter? Uh, 
No, I believe that naturopathic medicine uh, is moving forward. Uh, what I get worried about, so I did my postdoctoral work with the Institute for Functional Medicine mm-hmm. and a brilliant organization, you know, as well. Uh, but 90% of the people there are MDs. And so what they're doing, though, is they're looking at natural, let's call this just natural health, natural medicine. Sure. But they're looking at it from the eye, though, of conventional medicine still. Mm. So when someone comes in with depression or high cholesterol, they're giving them B3, vitamin B3, niacin, right? Right. I'm like, ah, it's not really how natural medicine works. You're giving a vitamin now as a pharmaceutical. They're just treating it the same way. Exactly, yeah. but with vitamins. So I get worried about that. The other thing is that I get um, a little bit concerned with is that functional medicine is now becoming synonymous with bioidentical hormones. And that's not something I can really get behind mm. uh, for most people. Now explain what bioidentical hormones are for the audience. So bioidentical hormones would be giving, uh, so the easiest way to look at it would be uh, the active form of folate in your body, which would be 5-methylfolate uh, or um, hydroxy-5-methylfolate. So that's what your body can use. So when we take in folic acid, this is a great example of why you don't want to take a multivitamin from the same place that you buy your toilet paper, like, you know, I am at Costco. Or something. Yeah. It's just like, not a good idea. It makes, uh, my, makes my pee really uh, bright, though. Uh, it's oh, like, yeah. uh, that folic acid is not going to be converted by anywhere between 33 to 70% of the population to, to natural folate, which means it can build up and become toxic in the body. Very important for women that are looking to get pregnant. Um, so the bioidentical hormone would be the end thing that our body can use. So like in birth control, that's not bioidentical. That's called... Uh, uh, ethyl estradiol, ethyl estradiol or ethanol estradiol. Mm -hmm. And it's a synthetic form that they would actually make in a lab. And so your body doesn't know how to use that. But with a bioidentical hormone, you're using something as the end product of what that looks like hormone-wise. But you're replacing the progesterone, you're replacing estrogen, or you're replacing testosterone typically. Okay. So that's what doctors are doing when females come in with uh, estrogen dominance. They're yeah. giving more progesterone. They're giving bioidentical progesterone. Exactly. Yep. Or guys come in and they're giving them, hard to say that you're making bioidentical testosterone. That's that's a challenging one. Yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah, because isn't that controlled? I mean, how are they doing it's that? without a doubt, it's controlled. And so, but here's what happens that you can't confuse your body. The issue that got you estrogen dominant or low testosterone in the first place. Still there. Still going to be there. Yeah. And now you're saying, I'm going to put that back in. What I want to do is say, like, what is that? What are you doing then to your body by giving it two different signals? You have high testosterone or high progesterone, but yet you're still in the same state. Mm-hmm. What is that going to do? That's weird. Mm-hmm. Very strange. And it might cause some. Who knows what kind of who problems? Knows? Yeah, what kind of problems will happen? Wow. And is is uh, estrogen dominance the result of low progesterone or high estrogen, or can it be both? Yeah. So that's that's funny. I mean, that's that's what happens. We almost maybe one out of thirty women we see as actually having a high estrogen, believe it or not. It's just low progesterone. It's low progesterone. They come back normal. And the best way to test this is you're going to run a hormone test uh, five to seven days before you would get your day one of menstruation. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be around day 21, day 23 of your cycle. And that's going to be the highest peak in progesterone. So what you want there is your highest level of progesterone and somewhere near your lowest level of estrogen. We find almost always nine out of 10 women have some level of estrogen dominance. And so I wouldn't even answer your question back an hour ago, however long it's been. They get acne on the chin. They get maybe lower mood. They get more bloating, uh, more irritability. They uh, might start to get a little bit of facial hair growth. This is happening for women. Mm. And they're like, yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm getting the water retention, more of the cellulite. And the other issue is that when you start to make more, well, when you start to make more estrogen, you can add more body fat. When you make more body fat, it's a vicious cycle because you start to make more estrogen. And it's like that a positive more feedback loop. And it's so hard. So you can break it, of course, but it's not the easiest thing to how do. How do you typically, okay, how do you, uh, I guess this is a tough question, right? Because it depends on the individual. But generally speaking, how would you 
treat a woman who's estrogen dominant. Let's say she has all those symptoms, acne on the, you know, on the chin, water retention, um, more fat gain than before, maybe in the form of cellulite, which I've also read is, is sometimes connected to, you know, estrogen dominance. What, what are some things that they can do, the average woman can do to help balance that out? So right out of the gates, we believe in two things in my practice. We want to help people get rid of the symptoms in the short term because nobody wants to live with their symptoms. Right. We want to do it naturally, though. That won't cause more harm in the long run while working on the long-term game plan. Got it. I believe most people can get well within 12 to 16 weeks. And I've seen this play out over the years. I've also seen it in the Ayurvedic literature and other types of literature. But then I look at it from modern-day science. All of your cells in your body turn over every 120 days. It's four months. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. So what we're looking, though, in the short term is that that's why like people with blood sugar dysregulation, I mean, you need to really work for three to four months. You need to change the cell receptors on your cells. You need new cells. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, you need to do everything that you can not to keep spiking blood sugar and insulin, sure. right? So what we do for women with estrogen dominance, now it could happen with men. It's just at a much subtler level, to be honest, like a much, much subtler level, is that we use um, DIM, uh, diendomethanol, I believe is the- and It just changes the, 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 the form of estrogen that gets converted in the liver into a, a less- I guess... Uh, Toxic form. Okay. Yeah, okay. that's correct. Exactly. And it also helps with the removal of those end estrogen metabolites. Okay. The other thing we want to do is work on constipation. A lot of women are constipated. They don't believe or know that they're supposed to have one to two bowel movements per day. Mm-hmm. And what happens is if you are constipated, you can absorb, although not as strong, lesser versions of um, estrogen through the colon. Mm. Okay. So we need to make sure that that's corrected. At the same time, we know that most likely they went lower progesterone because they're in an environment, whether internal or external, meaning exogenous from without or endogenous from within, of an environment that's causing them to be in a higher stress stress state. Okay. So what we need is look at their cortisol levels, look at their thyroid. So we run a lab called the Thyroid Adrenal Hormone Lab. And when we run that, then we can say, oh, look, cortisol is off. Let's do this. Let's calm stress the sympathetic Got nervous it. system. Let's then, now we don't even have to do a lot of work for the thyroid because we know the thyroid is affected by the HPA axis, which is the adrenals, which then also affects progesterone. Right. So our belief is we always want to do more with less. Okay. And if we know the underlying root causes, let's work on that, kind of like the big rocks theory. And then everything else will fall into place. Now, if it hasn't fallen into place by 12 weeks, then we'll start to give extra for the um, for the thyroid. Okay. So so someone like that, you want to reduce their stress, probably not a good idea to have coffee, a lot of coffee every single morning to elevate the cortisol even more. Yes. Okay. Okay. And you want to maybe, maybe have like a sleep routine uh, where you turn off the lights before you go to bed type of deal. Uh, more time to yourself, relaxing. Um, and then, like you said, the supplementation and, and constipation. Parasympathetic nervous system activities that we spoke about, infrared sw- sauna to sweat out some of those toxins. And the third would be increased cruciferous vegetables. Mm. If you increase cruciferous vegetables that are higher in sulfur, uh, sulforaphane, they will help to also mitigate the effects of higher estrogen mm. in the body. And mm. what about the indole three carbon all that's in those? Isn't that all convert to DIM in, uh, as well in the cruciferous vegetables? In the cruciferous vegetables as well. Okay, yeah. excellent. So, yeah. just, so, that, so we're getting supplements plus whole food. We're a big believer in the best of functional medicine, orthomolecular medicine, modern supplements combined with the best of whole food. We use both. Excellent, excellent. So this is the protocol for someone who has cellulite also? If it's due to, to estrogen dominance, I would say. And usually there's a connection with that, but also there's a connection to toxicity. And that has to do with plastics in the environment and many other things. So what happens is that can cause water-based retention, uh, which, by the way, plastics then cause what? Higher levels of 
Estrogen. Estrogen. Yeah. So we're going yeah. back to estrogen. All those right? um, and what we're doing is we're doing dry brushing and we're doing a lot of sauna as well for people with, uh, and we're doing rebounding for people with cellulite. So we're draining the lymphatic tissue. We're using self-massage or dry brushing to help restructure because there's an actual structural based um, uh, dysfunction with cellulite as well. Wow. So is it is it treatable to the point where you can reverse it? Or Absolutely. So there's people talk about genetics. So to us, oh, just genetics. Yes, there's genetics. Some women will never get cellular. Right, genetics always play Some, a role. <laughs> they do. But you put yourself in the environment, knowingly or unknowingly, a lot of people unknowingly, but it was still the environment that allowed for the cellulite to, to come to Hey, fruition. man, look, I've had mm-hmm. clients who have swore to me. They're like, look, I used to get fatter all the time, and I didn't get cellulite. And now, if I gain a little bit of weight, it turns into cellulite. What the hell is going on? And it's and typically, they'll have those kinds of other symptoms of estrogen dominance. And this is something I've just learned recently, because before it was always like, oh, it's nothing you yeah. can do about that. Just get leaner. It's just your genetics. And, well, and leaner won't, leaner won't do it. You know, So you'll see a lot of... I mean, leaner helps. So uh, sure. let me qualify that. Getting leaner helps. So there's less body fat. However, you'll see very lean people still with some cellulite. Right, right. It's like, well, what's you know, how does that happen? That right. shouldn't happen. Um, and so, yes, that's why there's there's just a deeper picture to this. But that's why, you know, cellulite is not an end state. Like it's a byproduct of something else that's imbalanced. So we talk about all the time with inflammation. Like everyone, and it's not as much anymore, which is great. So the industry is definitely getting better. But everything before was like, we just need to squelch inflammation. I'm like, we don't need to squelch inflammation. Yeah. We need to figure out what's causing the inflammation because inflammation is not a disease to be dealt with. It's a natural, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's also natural in the body. You completely eliminate inflammation, you're screwed. Like that's not good for you either. So are, are there things that you do because you've seen so much research, but it just hasn't quite been proven yet, but you're already taking some proactive precaution are there things in your life that you that would be yeah, controversial right. yes yes and so i want to hear, hear what they are so back in the you know back and we still do fitness to this day but it's it's just kind of like one component you know but um i mean i'm just a huge proponent of personal trainers and personal training in general i think it's one of the best careers in the world i also believe that you have the potentially the greatest opportunity to change lives because you're seeing people multiple times per week i mean who else does that right and you work you can work on nutrition exercise sleep lifestyle i mean you can get so much done but back in the day, we were doing way before Tabatas and those types of things, we were doing interval-based training with resistance-based exercise so that people wouldn't have to do the cardio. And we would keep it going for more than 20 seconds. And only now is it being played out that you can actually get the benefits of interval-based training uh, for between 90 seconds and three minutes, as long as you double that and work rest. So we were doing the intervals 20 seconds on, 30 seconds, I mean, um, uh, 20 seconds uh, with double that and rest. But then we were saying, this isn't working. Meaning like people need four to five times the rest period of the work period. Mm. Meaning if you do a 30 second sprint, you can't recover in 30 seconds or 60 seconds, not for an adequate interval. But Mm. that's what people were showing in the research. I'm like, I just don't see it play out in real life. So we looked at that. We said, okay, no, we're going all out for 20 seconds or 30 seconds. And that's the max. People really can't do a 60 second sprint. That is like, I mean, if you've ever run That's around not a, a track, sprint, man, at 60 seconds, you're dying at the yeah, end. Yeah. Like you might That's need, I remember time. doing it in track in high school and I wasn't recovered in another minute after no. that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so that's what we're doing back then. Another example is today is we are not, um, we are, we are doing a smoothie for breakfast. We are doing liquid before lunch. So all, and I, that includes oatmeal, it could include a sweet potato. It's something easy to digest. So here's what I looked at. Nowhere else in in ancient base times where they're doing a heavy breakfast. 
So now we're skipping breakfast, but I'm like, yeah, but skipping breakfast isn't working because it does not help to blunt cortisol and it's starting to slow thyroid in a lot of women. So I'm like, what if we did something that was easy to digest, that wasn't going to necessarily spike uh, blood sugar levels, that they could drink over the period of an, uh, of an hour or 90 minutes, so it'd be almost like time-release nutrition that would take very little digestive energy. Because when people were eating like the bacon and the eggs and all, like even just like, let's say like the pretend keto, that takes a tremendous amount of energy from your body. So 30% of all the energy in a day basically goes towards digestion. And if you get that back because you put easy to digest foods in your stomach, well, then that would give you a lot more energy back. And it would give you the liquid-based nutrition. Because remember, all the food you put in your body has to be turned into a liquid by your digestive system. What if we already did that? Mm -hmm. So we learned this by actually going through with people with digestive-based issues. That's how we were learning this. The other part to that was that we were getting the benefits that a lot of people were getting with fasting because basically a lot of people felt great when they were fasted because they got to keep all of their energy because mm -hmm. they have to break down any food. So we got tremendous benefits um, from doing that. And the way, again, that I learned that was people used to do soup for breakfast in a lot of ancient-based cultures. Mm. Americans are not going to eat soup for breakfast, right. but they'll do a smoothie. Right. And so this we did. Now, there's protein in the smoothie. Mm. Um, typically, we do vegan-based. And then there's some fruit in there. How much fruit? Well, no fruit for someone that has blood sugar issues in the beginning. Then eventually maybe it's one cup of fruit. Maybe mm. it's two cups of fruit. It depends on the individual. How, what's, their, what's their tolerance to carbohydrates? Mm. Uh, and you can figure that out by first starting low. That's why we do three weeks low carb. And then we, we actually want people to eat as many good carbs as they can. And that includes fruits and vegetables. The goal is to eat as many good quality foods as you can that are lower calorie, but um, so hypocaloric, but nutrient dense. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And that's the goal. So the goal is not to deprive, it's to give more, but we have to figure out the person. So um, that was a really long way of saying we'd like to do liquid before lunch, <laughs> easy to digest foods, and it's been tr life transforming in our practice. Mm. Uh, I, have a question, I have a question about uh, creatine. I, I, easily probably one of the most studied ergogenic uh, supplements that's out there. There's, uh, I don't know, hundreds of studies done on it. And they're finding now that it improves cognitive function in, in some people. It's got some antioxidant properties. But I've also read that it uh, has some, some, some effects on maybe DHT levels in men and can do things like, you know, uh, affect the lighting cells in the testes. And this is, this is all like not super conclusive evidence. How do you feel about creatine as a supplement? Is it something you think everybody should take or is it something that only certain individuals should take? Yeah, that's, that's going to be a bio-individualized one for sure as well. I do believe since it, and there's no doubt creatine works. So people are like, oh, I don't believe in creatine. It's like hard to not believe in something with that much research behind it. Yeah. Um, and now do some people have absorption issues with it? Yes, that's a different story. Uh, but when we look at it, well, we're getting it from food. Our body's going to need creatine anyways. I do believe that since it's an anabolic substance, meaning it's pro-growth, that it could lead to a conversion from testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. And anything that's anabolic will affect the prostate as well. Mm -hmm. So when we look at those, like that's like the death area for men, right? It was just like, oh, the prostate. It's just the same with like prostate cancer, breast cancer, the two things. Yeah. Anything um, higher in estrogen and anything that's going to convert from testosterone to DHT will affect breast tissue and, and prostate cancer. So I do believe that is their, that potential. I just don't think it's going to happen to every guy. Who it happens to, hard to say. And also in combination with what else you're doing, right? A lot of like heavy meat in the diet, red meats, very anabolic based foods, yeah. really hard training, like anything that's going to amp up the body and put yeah. it more of an anabolic state. Now I, I have, if, if, when, if there's a genetic role for prostate cancer or prostate enlargement, I should say, I definitely uh, have it. It's on both sides of my family. All the men in my family have 
prostate enlargement issues. My grandfather had prostate cancer, but it was a very mild, mild form. But other than that, it's like prostate enlargement up and down on both sides. What are the things that I can do to help prevent that from happening to me? So over the age of 40, most guys have some type of prostate cancer-based cells in their body. Um, over the age of 70, every male has them. Okay. So now we're looking at how quickly is the proliferation, which luckily is slower for prostate-based cancer. What you want to do is you want to make sure that you do not have any heavy metals in the body. Mm. Aluminum, they seem to have an affinity for the prostate, just like breast tissue as well. Hmm. Um, and what you'll also want to make sure is that you are eating a lot of those cruciferous-based vegetables that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Good, so check. I, I would also <laughs> do a quarterly-based liver detox. What does that mean? Just simply getting more phase one and phase two nutrients in your body with a longer fast so that we can kill some of those cancer cells. Got it. So that's absolutely recommended. Um, and then the other part, so there are great natural-based substances. So again, I'm a huge believer in orthomolecular medicine, which is basically looking at vitamins and minerals and all those great things combined with the best of herbal-based medicine that we've known for thousands of years. Well, Stinging nettles and pygeum are absolutely tremendous for the prostate and prostate inflammation. Zinc is the number one for prostate-based issues. So I'd make sure that you're not deficient in zinc. Anywhere from 15 milligrams to 50 milligrams a day of a zinc picolinate or some other great form of a chelated-based form of zinc, um, as well as doing things maybe like a prostate support-based supplement um, that has natural herbs in it already that will help with the prostate-based issues. Some guys just get prostatitis, which is inflammation of the prostate. Then they have poor urinary flow, maybe you know some erectile dysfunction-based issues. Right. Those are your first signs, so I'd absolutely look at that first. Inflammation mm. comes first now, before the cancer. Stinging, stinging nettle and uh, the other one, pygium? Pygium. I can never pronounce it. I know, <laughs> I know how to spell it. Um, is that something you would take regularly or is that something you take c- c- uh, cyclically? You would take it regularly. And again, like I'm not a huge fan. Like there's a few supplements that I recommend, like kind of foundational based supplements, but regularly I don't like to do anything unless needed. But after the age, let's say of 50, you say, yes, but everyone in my family had this. So it makes sense for me to take it. And I would say, I totally agree with that statement. Yes. Okay. Okay. What are some of the regular supplements that you you would recommend? I just think that everybody needs a fail safe. So I've studied organic foods and uh, conventional based foods. People are all over saying like, there's no need to eat organic. Like you're missing the point. Like you're just missing the point that it has nothing to do with the macros. Yes. An almond has somewhere around five, six grams of protein, 13 grams of fat, six to eight grams or so of carbs, whether it's organic or conventional, like that's what it is in a quarter sure. cup. Like it doesn't change the molecular structure. Where you're looking at an organic is that you hope that the soil contains more of the nutrients that's then uptaken into the food. Like that's how it happens. And then also you don't have all of the glyphosate-based sprays on it. And glyphosate on conventional-based food has been shown to actually potentially, now again, there is a case that was just awarded a close to $200 million. We saw that. I mean, like that's proven now. It causes cancer. But the other thing is, no one's talking about that. It's an antibacterial. It's an anti-pesticide. Well, your gut has 100 trillion of those uh, pests in there, right? Yeah. And so that glyphosate over time very well may start to uh, cause a dysfunction in that microbiome, which affects your immune system. And then who knows what else it causes? Yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't so. interrupt the is it the, the shikimati pathway, and the bacteria have that pathway, don't they? I actually I don't know that. That's okay, not. Okay. Uh, I might have just made that word up. I right like now. that. <laughs> that's 
That's going to be on the checklist. Yeah. Shikamati. Yeah, we'll see what so happens. I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, but getting back to the, so foundational. So, but even organic based foods since the 1960s, there'll be anywhere from 13% to 30 something percent less of the minerals uh, potentially that they had before. So I do like a, a functional medicine multivitamin. How do you know if it's functional medicine based? Well, it's third party tested and it contains the methylated form of the B vitamin. So like the methyl cobalamin for your B12, the methyl folate for your folic mm. acid. Um, it's just, that's a smart way to do it. Like your B6 is uh, paradoxal 5-phosphate. It's just, those are the absorbable forms that aren't going to build up and become toxic. So I recommend that, not super high dose, it's just a normal um, overall multi. And I recommend that most people supplement once they've rebalanced their gut. Now remember, a probiotic is not for everyone. If you have bloating, you have gas, you have acid reflux, you have burping, you most likely have some type of overgrowth. Figure out what it is, Hmm. eliminate first. Because if you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and you add more bacteria, to a gut that's full of bacteria, Not you're making good. it worse. Yeah, yeah, you're making it worse. So get your gut healthy. Then you can use a, a multi-strain probiotic. Mm. I'm a big believer in um, uh, some type of fruit and vegetable blend so that most people eat vegetables, and, and you should. I believe that most people should eat seven to nine servings or seven to nine cups of vegetables every day. It's a lot. Fruits and vegetables. It's a lot, right? But we look at it as this. Two cups of berries in the smoothie, or you can do some greens if you want. Uh, two to three cups with lunch, two to three cups at dinner. You're good. And I, I just, it can be cooked if you have trouble digesting uh, raw ones. But for most people, like my go-to every day at lunch is broccoli. So I don't have a, a varied selection all the time. I just don't have access to it. So I like a greens base as well to give you a varied, you know, selection as well. I think that's important. And then uh, just a couple others. Uh, most people would do well on magnesium, but just have to run in as many labs as I have. Vitamin D is a must, mm. uh, even for, you know, people in California, even for people getting sunlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Boston, we certainly don't get it for eight months of the year. And uh, omega-3s for most people. Mm-hmm. Not a super high dose, yeah. but a dose to be able to get you adequate. Mm. You've mentioned heavy metals a few times, and you've also mentioned how saunas help the body eliminate heavy metals. Would you say that that's one of the best ways, uh, independent of or, or besides eliminating what may, you know the, the way you're getting those heavy metals in the first place, would you say that's one of the best single ways of getting your body to detoxify itself from metals or are there other methods? So I love the heavy metal sauna. I mean, it's the sauna for the heavy metals. And we work with a That'd lot of cool people. Place. <laughs> yeah. and, and I was just about to say, we, you know, we we recommend people get their mercury amalgams, the silver amalgams taken out of their mouth, but yeah. only by a biological dentist, not your regular dentist. Oh yeah, you don't want to spray that shit through your yeah, mouth, man. That's, they'll yeah. just cut it in half. Yeah. They'll literally <laughs> cut it in half with no masks or anything and just take it out of your mouth. And it, it has to go in a biohazard container. It makes no sense. But I was saying like, that'd be great if you could actually do it in an infrared sauna. Yeah. Um, so oh, yeah. we do a lot of those recommendations. And um, But I did a, a podcast on this and it was... 42 days, the scientific research shows that in 90 to 93% of all iron, lead, and heavy metals can be removed from the body in, in 42 days if you're using cracked cell chlorella, vitamin C, and cilantro. Absolutely amazing. What? Those, and that eliminates 90%. And we did this. We did this with so people. So you just take it? Take it two to three times per day. Correct. So chlorella... Uh, cilantro and, and vitamin C. And, vitamin and we C. use one more. We added, this is not in the literature, but we added it because there's these things called biofilms that develop in the gut. And those biofilms have a large amount of heavy metals. You have to dissolve those biofilms to actually release the heavy mm-hmm. metals and access a lot of times that bacterial overgrowth or parasites, whatever it might be. So, but those bio, biofilm disruptors are easy. Those are just high level proteases, like protea, uh, proteolytic enzymes mm-hmm. to break it down. 
Wow, so, wow. Yeah. But the, but the sauna but the sauna also helps. So then with that. yeah, so but so that's the thing is like a lot of times we just try to heal a person with one modality when we have so many great modalities yeah. that work great together. They're synergists. Like my form of medicine's better than your form of medicine. I'm like, why don't we just relax? Uh, do what's best <laughs> for the patient or the client, you mm-hmm. know, whatever's best for them. And so doing an infrared sauna, um, yes, getting the mercury amalgams taken out of your mouth and by a biological dentist. Um, AIAOM.org, I believe, is the association that will show you if the dentist is the um, the person that can do it. Mm-hmm. It's a special certification. They have special equipment. And then doing the infrared sauna. So, like, use them all. They're, they would all be great. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Wow. Man. Well, this has been very informative. Wow. I'm going to yes. have to listen to this yeah. again. This, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. Anybody ever tell you you look like Marco Corleone from The Godfather? I've never heard that before. Yeah, bro. <laughs> you got to watch part two, especially. Look Could at, it be because I'm jet lagged? Oh, like, hey, like, <laughs> no, no, what are we saying yeah. right now? What are we even talking about? <laughs> no, no. How long have we been chatting? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> it's been a good been been minute. Yeah, yeah, it's been a long it's podcast. Really no, great. very informative. Yeah, I very really appreciated you answering all of our questions in very informative podcasts. I know a lot of our audience is going to enjoy this podcast quite a bit. So definitely. Yeah. No, it's been a, been a pleasure, uh, chatting with you guys. But the other thing is too, is like your message is, is exactly what we're looking for. I mean, you guys are bringing in people from different viewpoints that aren't the norm. And so I really appreciate that. Um, you having me in and just being able to, to share my message. Yeah, right. definitely. Yeah. Our, our goal really is to, to, you know, elevate the entire fitness and health uh, industry so that it can become the solution for, uh, the, the health problems that are plaguing, uh, Western society. I think you're a part of that, and so the more you can get your voice out, the better, and the better we can drown out all the other bullshit that uh, is probably not Absolutely. helping people. It's a good idea. Yeah, right excellent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at MindPumpMedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes Maps Anabolic, Maps Performance, and Maps Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support, and until next time, this is Mind Pump.